welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 46 for April 2015. I am your hostess with the mostest, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is my co-host Mike. How you doing, Mike? Hey, Quinn, I'm doing all right. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Lots of good Apple II stuff to talk about today. Yeah, I got a, a bunch of news items that we can we can cover. But uh, first, we've got a a great interview. I think that people will really enjoy. Um, Mr. Paul Ludus is joining us. Uh, Paul, of course, authored the first Apple II word processor, uh, Apple Writer, and the WPL language that went along with that. And he wrote Transforth, and I think it's pronounced Graphorth. Yeah, Graphorth. Yep. Okay. Okay. And an ALD, which is an assembly language program. And yeah, we're really excited to have him on the show. So welcome, Paul. Thank you for joining us. Thank Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So uh, I know that you got actually you you got started with NASA and JPL. Or at least that's kind of where the the biographies that I read about you online sort of start. How did how did you get from there to Apple to writing stuff? Well, during my career as an engineer, which pre- predated my time as software developer, um, I became aware of the fact that um, uh, that things happened very slowly in the engineering world. It took a long time to put something together and make it work. And I started fantasizing about how it would be if I could uh, have a symbolic version of engineering, where instead of uh, bolting things together and soldering things together, you could actually just write a mathematical equation. And so I imagined the spectrum, okay, between hardware and something beyond software, just pure mathematics. And all my life before uh, the personal computer arrived, I imagined how much easier it would be if it could all be done symbolically. Because what I was doing was assembling these gadgets that were meant to accomplish some symbolic end. And I was pretty good at, at hardware engineering. I worked on the space shuttle. I designed uh, high, high efficiency 20 kilohertz inverters for the NASA space shuttle fleet. And uh, that was fun, but it took forever. And I always thought that, uh, as I said, I always thought that it would be nice to have something that was more cerebral. So as time went by, uh, computers started intruding themselves into my work in a favor- very favorable way, like I could uh, anticipate how a circuit would work by handing a set of, of 80-column punch cards to the computing center, and three days later, I'd get a result, and I'd go, oh, that's how that's going to work. Well, that's interesting, and it, I got accustomed to how long everything took. Okay, so after my shuttle work was finished and the shuttle was launched, I decided to retire so I bought a cheap piece of land in Oregon and started living in the country. And I had a little garden and I had chickens and a rustic cabin with wood heat and a kerosene lantern. And that was fun because I had gotten tired of living in cities. So I lived, I had a bicycle, I didn't own a car, and uh, I just had a very minimal existence. And I had the grand total of $3,000 in the bank, which I expected to last forever. Hmm. Then in 1977, I was reading Scientific American one evening by a kerosene lantern, and there was an advertisement for an Apple II. And I, I, I've been spending the day looking at some of my old Apple equipment in the basement, and I'm just, I just rekindled in myself the memory of how exciting the thought of having your own personal computer. See, now, with young people, it's nothing. It's just a given that you can get a personal computer or a tablet or whatever, and you can solve all kinds of problems that, that occupied our minds in those days completely. Uh, but the idea that I could have a personal computer and pose mathematical problems was just 
incredibly exciting. And so I instantly ordered one, even though it used up more than half the money I had at the time. And it arrived, and I started playing with it. And the first thing that happened to me was the collision of reality with uh, the world of dreams. I sat down, and, it, and the instruction sheet that, that came with the computer said, To enter BASIC, type Control-B and, and press Return. I must have typed C-O-N-T-R-O-L-B a thousand times <laughs> before I realized that they meant something completely different then. And so I wrote them a, a letter after I got underway and had began to be successful with the Apple II. I wrote them a letter and I said, you need to explain this differently for people who've never seen a computer before, which they did. I have in front of me the uh, the Apple II reference manual, which is the so-called Red Book. And they, they more or less word for word took my advice. And they said, you know, hold down the control key, press the B key, release the B key, then release the control key. <laughs> <laughs> for people like me. Anyway, so I started writing programs, and I had plenty of free time. Then, a magazine wrote me and said, next year is Einstein's centennial. We'd like an article about relativity. At that time, I had written a lot of science and technology articles, and so I said, oh, that sounds like a great opportunity. So I started writing this article about special relativity. I limited myself to special relativity. Uh, pretty soon, I had little pieces of paper all over the room with bits and pieces that I realized that I needed to get together in exactly the right way. It reminds me a little bit of a story about John McPhee. John McPhee, I found out later, supposedly worked exactly the same way. He had a whole bunch of index cards, and when he was preparing an article, he would just put an idea on an index card and put it in his pile. And then he had a big table, and he'd rearrange the cards, try to figure out what order to tell the story in. Anyway, so there I was. And I went, whoa, wait a minute, I have a computer now. I could probably write some kind of a program that would organize all these things on the screen of the computer rather than on these pieces of paper. And I could move them around and delete something from one place and put it in another place. So it, so pretty quickly, two projects got started at once. I started writing this this organizer program, this word organizer program, and the article that I had a deadline to complete at the, simultaneously. So I would spend some time writing the article and go, I need this feature. Then I would switch over and write some software and then go back, back and forth. So I was my, I was the customer for the first version of Apple Writer. I was the, I was the user as well as the, the software designer. I, I got the, uh, the program, which I called Lexicalc up to a certain level of, of sophistication. And I got the article done and I submitted it to the magazine. And then somebody, I had a friend visit or something. Anyway, Apple heard about the program. And by then, Apple couldn't sell Apple IIs to hobbyists anymore. They, they saturated the hobbyist market with a lot of happy, happy um, owners, by the way. But still, they wanted to branch out and sell computers to people who weren't advocates and early adopters and hobbyists, just ordinary people who wanted, who wanted to be sold on the idea of owning a personal computer. In order for that to happen... They needed finished apps. They needed things like spreadsheets and word processors. So they wrote me and said, do you have this program? We've heard this rumor about this program that's sort of like a word processing program. I said, yeah, um, yeah, I do. So I, they expressed an interest, so I spiffed it up a little bit more and put it in a big manila envelope and rode my bicycle to the post office. And I, uh, I put, as I put the envelope in the post office box, I said, gee, I hope they like my program. Maybe I can make $100. <laughs> and uh, they liked it. And the first version of Apple Writer sold for $7,500. I sold it outright. I didn't know better. And Apple took it and stripped out my copyright notice and sold it as an Apple product for a while until they realized that 
there were all kinds of things that were happening with the Apple itself. Like suddenly it could show upper and lower case and it had an 80 column wide screen after a while. And nobody at Apple could figure out how to accommodate these improvements in my program. So they came back hat in hand and said, you know, um, this, this could actually be a much better program. We don't have the people with the required. Oh, by the way, I left something out. It was written in assembly language. It wasn't written in basic or, or in any other high level language that made it fast. It made it small. It made it really efficient, but it also meant that unless somebody had a, a particular kind of skill set, they weren't going to be able to make any changes in the program. I said, yeah, okay, we can start over, but you know what? I've, I've made a lot of changes in this program, and it isn't really the same program anymore, and I have some new requirements. One, you can't take my name out of the program. It's going to be my program. If you sell it, it's going to be sold under contract, and it's going to have my name and my copyright notice on it. And two... I think royalties is a better idea than, a, than an outright sale. They were delighted with the, they weren't so happy about the first, but they were delighted with the second because they didn't have a lot of money at that moment. So they said, royalties, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. That means we don't have to give you any money up front. I says, that's right, no problem at all. And so they said, okay, what, uh, what royalty rate are you interested in doing? I said, I don't know. I haven't known anything about these things. How about 25%? And they said, sure, why not? 25% sounds good. Five years later, Five years later, after I had made $6 million on Apple Rider, they were going, we gave that guy 25%? My God, that was so stupid. But I was, they, they tried to get me to um, uh, reduce the royalty rate, but no, no dice. Okay, so that was the basis of, uh, of Apple Rider. As the years went by, uh, it, it was issued in five languages, and it was able to support upper and lowercase. And I added the... Um, Word processing language, WPL, which automated a lot of things. People could even do form letters. This was pre-internet, by the way. So, so somebody who was interested in spamming everybody in the world, they had to do it on paper, which greatly reduced the, the dimensions of the problem, as you can imagine. They had to do it on, instead of just instantly, you know, sending out gazillions of emails at no cost. They had to create a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it. So I didn't feel so bad about allowing this. So if, if a person had an address list, they could actually create form letters and, and punch in the addresses using my tiny little program, which fit into this in tiny, tiny uh, amount of memory. And I'm emphasizing this for a reason. Most, most people in the modern world, they go, what? Less than a terabyte? What's wrong with you? In those days, my first, my first Apple II that I, the first version I bought before I upgraded it had four kilobytes of memory. And after I wrote a few programs, Apple said, the Apple people said, these are nice little game programs. This is good. And be sure to keep them below four kilobytes because the majority of our users only have four kilobytes of memory. It's hard to imagine from a modern perspective how I put, squeezed anything into that small amount of memory. But one of the reasons was it was assembly language. And if you spend a lot of time and are extremely patient, you can squeeze a lot into that because there's no overhead. It's all the native tongue of the computer. Okay. Now we'll get to the Apple III. First, I have to say this. I, I just went down into the basement and looked at my Apple II, which I still have, my original Apple II, which is now mounted on a board with a long ribbon cable to another board that has the keyboard mounted on it because I, mm -hmm. I couldn't stand the idea of having the keyboard near the system unit. I needed to have notes and stuff in front of me. And every, every integrated circuit in that machine is in its own separate socket. And the reason was, in those days... Uh, those integrated circuits were quite expensive. And it seemed a shame to throw away an entire motherboard because of the failure of one IC. So the failure rates were higher, and the integrated circuits themselves were more expensive. By the time the Apple III was being designed, there was about to be a big turn 
where integrated circuits became less expensive, the efficiency with which motherboards could be could be wave soldered and and uh, created without sockets uh, was about to there was about to be a huge engineering change in the way computers were designed, and I think the Apple III was either the last or near nearly the last major project that used socketed integrated circuits because it was a disaster. Again, I was just reading the uh, the the red book, the Apple II reference manual, and it mentioned that that when you got your unit in the mail or by truck. You should, you should take the cover off and re-socket all the ICs that had fallen out of their sockets before turning the power on. And I thought that was good advice because that was a very common experience. The difference being the Apple III had more integrated circuits. And so more uh, ways for the, ironically enough, more ways for the uh, for that failure mode to occur, for integrated circuits to fall out of the sockets. And it was harder to locate them all and reseat them all because the unit was larger and it had more sockets. So uh, as far as I was concerned, it was a failed uh, design, and that was something that um, came to the uh, occurred to a lot of other people at that time. Anyway, I wrote a version of of Apple Writer, which was fairly easy to create because there were so many similarities. One of the objections to the Apple III, by the way, was that people heard a lot of advanced press, and they got the idea that it was a completely different kind of computer with a different processor and a different architecture. But it turned out to be an evolutionary change from the Apple II, not a revolutionary change. It was very much like the Apple II. It was just an, an enhancement. Anyway, I, I wrote a, a new version of Apple Writer. Most of the parts of, of the program were uh, transferred unchanged, except the file handling, which, which needed to be to accommodate the new operating system, the sophisticated operating system. Uh, and the people at Apple asked me whether I would be willing to go through the OS, SOS, the sophisticated operating system, for the display as well as file handling so that it could be managed uh, by the, the operating system rather than having me go directly out to the hardware. And I was down in Cupertino, and I showed them the problem. The problem was the overhead created by the operating system prevented the display from updating quickly enough to be usable for a word processing program. So I actually wrote a version of Apple Writer for the sole purpose of talking the Apple people out of this idea they had that, that I would be obliged to go through the OS. And they went, oh my God, this is unbelievable. They would press a key and then three seconds later, the new character would appear on the screen. So they realized that wasn't going to work. So they, they gave me carte blanche, which, by the way, in the, in the stories I've read about the Apple three, uh, this is a bit obscure. They, they, I think they're trying, a lot of the people who were involved with the project in those days, have sort of tried to make it sound as though that didn't actually happen, that I, that I went along with the, the operating system requirements, which was partly true. As far as file handling is concerned, I did, because that was a very good thing, because all I had to do was submit a buffer full of characters and a file name and a pathway, as, as is true now, and it was, everything was fine. The only problem was it didn't work that well for the, uh, for the display. So I think that's something that's obscure, and I, I want to say up front, that they gave way entirely and said, we want this program to work as fast as humanly possible. So we're giving you carte blanche to go all the way around the OS and, and talk directly to the hardware, just as you did in the, in the earlier versions of Apple Writer, which I did. So all the versions of Apple Writer, including those for the 2E and the other versions of the, the Apple II that came later, all talk directly out to the hardware. Okay, so you can start asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's uh, <laughs> quite a bit there. Um, you sent uh, along a link to the, the Cottage Computer Programming article that yeah. you wrote a number of years ago, and I was just glancing through this and and in one of the the final paragraphs here you wrote overall i believe the computer age favors the individual and that resistance to the individual work style is a last gasp of uh the dying industrial age and i'm i'm as i'm reading this i'm seeing a lot of really positive optimism about the future of of computers as as a tool to better people's lives do you 30 years or so down the road do you still feel that way was that was that potential realized? Yes, more than ever. Uh, in both respects, that, that article made two points. One, an individual has a, a role to play in software development. And two, there's some, there's some very positive uh, ways the computer will affect uh, the human species. And I think both are still true more so now than ever. Uh, with regard to the first, the uh, individual as a software developer, one can look around now and, and say, oh, brother, boy, was that a misguided notion, just because of the number of team projects that are out there. Uh, and the way that uh, that modern software development uh, is arranged to accommodate all kinds of different people working on the same project by having a, a huge gap between implementation and interface, as one example. Uh, but... I've written a lot of successful uh, programs as an individual, and it's really much easier and quicker than attending a lot of committee meetings and, and trying to figure out a consensus on various ways that a project can go forward. It doesn't work very well for large projects. Like, I don't think that, that my work style or the work style of an individual software developer, not to say that I'm the only one by any means, can accommodate a, a huge program like an operating system. Even um, uh, Linus Torvalds, now is a small cog in a big machine. But it's also important to point out that he created the first version of Linux uh, single-handedly. And uh, once it was successful, it was uh, its potential became obvious. It was then that other people got involved. And I think that uh, the frustration that, that Torvalds frequently exhibits might be an indication of how tough it is to work in a committee environment. Not that necessarily that's a bad thing, because people shouldn't learn how to get along with each other. But in the future, I think computer languages will be efficient enough and powerful enough that an individual wanting to solve a problem will have an easier and easier time doing so because of all the resources that are made available in, in increasingly sophisticated computer languages. I'm thinking at the moment of, of uh, the most recent versions of Python now has some fantastic libraries of uh, programs. For example, one, one library is able to solve rather sophisticated mathematical equations, uh, things that one used to have to um, order up a copy of Mathematica, install it, and run it in order to do the same sorts of things. But this is a real trickle-down. Some of these libraries are really powerful. And in a recent project, mostly mathematical, that did optics, that, that allows people to design optical systems, I used Python's um, version of equation solvers to solve some really sophisticated equations as part of the work, and it spread the project up tremendously. Even though the project wasn't written itself in Python, I needed to write it in Java so that it would run on a lot of platforms. But when it came to solving all the equations and getting them all in into the different forms I needed, I just used Python. So Python, for me, is an example of a where very highly specialized libraries are written to ease the way for an individual working alone to create a really nice program um, without necessarily having to write all the bits and pieces uh, down to the, the detail level that I had to write back in the old days. Oh, I should say something about the arc of my career. When I was a teenager, I, I designed tube vacuum tube circuits. Then I designed transistor circuits. Then I designed integrated circuits. 
Then I started doing more and more mathematics in order to design integrated circuits and other circuits like the ones on the space shuttle. Then I started designing programs rather than hardware. I switched into software. And now I get to do mathematics, which is probably what I wanted to do in the first place. That's, uh, that's quite a, a road to have come down. The, uh, that the philosophy that you're talking about with you know, the Python libraries and, and making it easier for people to get their jobs done, is that, is that what went into uh, your decisions when you were writing Graphorth and, and Transforth? Yes, that was, exactly, that was a very good question. That was exactly what I had in mind. I wanted to do the grunt work for people so they could draw pictures and do mathematics with accompanying graphics uh, in Graphorth and, and uh, because... I realized that most people who would like to do that sort of thing wouldn't want to go into the detail level. And in those days, it was a bit more difficult because I had those two examples you gave were both written in assembly. Uh, one of them was written in, uh, no, I'm sorry, both of them were written in fourth, which as far as I was concerned was assembly because I had to write all the libraries in assembly. And then the interface was fourth so that users who used the programs could create fourth words one after another that would refer to the underlying uh, assembly, but basically it was assembly to fourth. Uh, nowadays, when people write fourth uh, interpreters, they don't necessarily have to go all the way down to assembly to accomplish what they need to do. In those days, it was necessary. There wasn't anything. There was no lower level to appeal to, including floating point. Everybody takes floating point for granted now. Isn't there a floating point processor in all the main CPUs now? Which is true now, but I've I've watched that come into being. And, and when I f wrote my first examples of floating point packages, I had to write them from scratch. They were written in assembly. That was hard. Did uh, did ALD the assembly language package that you wrote was that to help you write yes, fourth? That's okay. right, exactly. No, yes, it, I ended up writing fourth uh, programs in it, but it was my way of of speeding up the, the assembly language development, because as far as I could see at that point when I wrote it, it was going to be assembly for a long time to come before anything more sophisticated came into being, and that was before the the PC. Uh, sorry, it was before the IBM model PC. It was before floating point packages became a given in a processor. So everything had to be done. In, essentially, every, I had to do everything in assembly. Now, all the modern languages, which are extremely efficient, including C and C++, C Sharp, etc., they all call the floating point processor, coprocessor, which we used to call a coprocessor. I don't think it's called it that anymore. That's all taken care of. And whenever anything goes wrong with that coprocessor, there was a famous story about a decade ago where Intel had allowed a, an error to creep in, and it influenced uh, floating-point computations in banks and that sort of thing, and it was a big, a big deal. Believe me, that was a big deal. Intel almost had to take back the chips they had sold already. That's right. The original uh, Pentium had uh, an infamous floating-point bug in it. That's it. That's the one. Anyway, that's a lot of change. Uh, that's a... I, I can't... I can't even begin to describe moving as far as I've moved since the time I was a teenager and I expected to be designing vacuum tube circuits as a living. But by the time I was no longer fixing people's television sets, which is what I did when I was 13, and started actually designing things professionally, vacuum tubes were almost all the way out the door. And so everything after that was just gradual and sometimes not so gradual transition from one technology to another. Can you talk about your electric duet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Electric Duet was a program that, that even though the speaker in the Apple II was connected to a logic gate, in other words, it was either turned on or turned off. There was no analog intermediate levels. At first, I learned how to make it play tones, which were square waves and very ugly sounding. And then as time went by, I realized that because of my background, I could change the volume and the pitch of the sound by changing the duty cycle 
uh, of the square wave. So if I made the duty cycle narrow, the, the spectrum changed, but the volume also changed. So I realized I could actually change the volume coming out of the speaker on the Apple II by changing the duty cycle of the square wave that was driving it. The next thing that occurred to me was that I could have a complicated square wave with two parts playing two different notes at once, where the square wave would uh, devote half of its duty cycle to one of the tones by going up and down, and the other half of the square wave would, would play another note. And I made that work. And then I said, wow, now what I need to do is create a player that can play accurate notes according to the chromatic scale that were actually in tune, two different notes at once of different timbers without going out of tune. And uh, what I realized that I needed to do uh, because in, in now in modern times, all you do is send some instructions to a sound card, and the sound card has its own separate clock, so you don't have any timing difficulties. In those days, the program that was creating the music was also the program that was picking up the next note to play and deciding what to do next and listening to the keyboard and everything else. I ended up writing this amazing piece of code, if I say so myself, that was um, a couple of hundred bytes long, and it did everything. It played two notes. It, it cycled through, uh, it knew how long to play the notes for because it was given those instructions by the, uh, the data file. And it never changed the, the, uh, the amount of time to pass through the subroutine from the top to the bottom was the exact number of, of machine cycles every time, regardless of what was going on. And that was very difficult. If I made a branch from one place to another, the branch had to be executed without changing the entire, the total time the loop took to go through the, oh man, I just remember how tough that was. <laughs> anyway, and so the people at Apple were naturally enough, there's no way that could possibly be true. And then I mailed them a copy and they went, I can't believe he did this. Uh, by the way, that, that program had a finite life. As soon as they introduced interrupts, as soon as there was a mouse on the Apple II, it stopped working because the interrupts just spoiled the timing. As, and as soon as there was any other clock speed than uh, just over one megahertz, that also did it in. So it was a very, it was a, it was a program of its time. There are demonstrations now on the web that, um, that show how Electric Duet worked, but they, of course, don't have interrupts and they don't allow the uh, clock speed to change at all. Otherwise, it spoils that program. So there's an example of a program, which I, I now realize is true for every program, that it had a finite lifetime. It was completely dependent on the hardware it ran on. And as soon as I released it, everybody went, wow, amazing. And then the clock started ticking. And within five years or so, or eight years at the very most, it couldn't be played anymore. And people would look back on it and go, well, that was an interesting interlude. Quinn, um, you've been kind of quiet over there. Do you have any questions? <laughs> yeah, I got a couple. Um, well, Paul, let me start by uh, saying that uh, reading about it by Kerosene Lantern in a magazine is the most interesting uh, story of Apple II discovery that I've heard. <laughs> you said that you wrote Apple Writer in your cabin in Oregon. Is that right? Right. I had built a cabin on top of a 400-foot hill, kerosene heat, wood heat, uh, kerosene lanterns, wood heat, excuse me. And I decided that I wanted to program up there also. At that time, I was going back and forth between Apple and, uh, and my cabin because as, as the interest, as Apple's interest in my programs accelerated, I needed to go back and forth. Finally, the, the royalty started coming in from Apple Rider and I bought an airplane. And so what I would do is I'd, I'd ride my bicycle to the local airport, put my bike in the airplane, fly my airplane down to California and ride my bike over to Cupertino to get things accomplished. Oh, wow. Anyway, so, so I have two stories about that. One of them is, in order to to operate the Apple II in my cabin on the hilltop, I had to run a long, long extension cord. That extension 
extension cord that was 1,200 feet long and it ran through the trees. It was the ugliest thing you ever saw. And if an electrical inspector had ever seen it, he would have had a heart attack on the spot. But the other story is the day I came down with a program, uh, an early version of Apple Writer. And I, I said, I'm going down to California with this program on floppy disks, and floppy disks are notoriously unreliable. So I made two copies. I just make two copies, just to be sure. And then I went down to California, rode my bike over to Cupertino, and said, here's my ver new version of the program. So Steve Jobs took one of the copies and said, I'm going to lunch. I'll take this for safekeeping so, so it can't get messed up, and you guys can mess with the other one. So he, he went away for lunch. And somebody else said, okay, I'll take care of this. I'll uh, make a copy right away. So we'll, we'll be sure to have at least one more copy. So that person took the copy and put it in a drive and put a blank disk in the other drive. Unfortunately, he got them backwards. So he erased, a, he erased my program disk. Instead of making a copy of the program to a blank disk, he made a copy of the blank disk onto the program. Meanwhile, Steve Jobs is out oh, no. having lunch in some nice restaurant, and his car is out in the parking lot in the hot California sun, and the, the five and a quarter inch floppy disk is sitting on the dashboard of his car, crinkling up. It crinkled up into a little ball under the extraordinary heat of his nice car. Anyway, so he came back and he said, I've got bad news. And I, and I said, we've got worse news. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what did I do? I got a scalpel and I cut open the, the shriveled up disc from Steve's copy. And it turned out that the medium inside the five and a quarter inch floppy was of much sterner stuff than the, than the envelope. So it hadn't crinkled up as much anyway. So I was able to extract it and put it into a fresh new uncrinkled five and a quarter inch floppy disk, which I had cut a, uh, a slice through the side of to allow me to introduce the medium. And it was readable. So that saved wow. that. That saved. That was the only time in my life that I've seen Steve Jobs in an apologetic mood <laughs> ever. That was, I, I really didn't like him very much. And, and he was rather imperious. But at that, he was actually, he looked, came back with this disk in his hand and he said, oh, this is not so great. <laughs> which I think there was universal agreement on that point. Well, good thing you had the backup then, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I'm interested in the uh, the WPL language in uh, Apple Writer. That uh, must have been a pretty early example, if not the first example, of a macro language within another application like a word processor. What, uh, where did that idea come from? I have to say that, that I think it was a very early example, but because I was personally involved in it, I'm probably not the right person to say whether it was the first, but it was an early example. And and basically, you may already know this, but each of the instructions for word processing uh, in the WPL language was a period followed by a two or three letter code um, right in the text file along with the text. So, for example, if I wanted to center a block of text, I would just have a, a couple of, of letter code. And And so what that meant was that if you had a period against the left margin followed by some letters, I think I, I think I had a way to allow it to be printed out as regular characters unless it met the requirements to be uh, one of the valid codes. I hope that was true. I must confess that I don't remember anymore. But the idea was that if it was one of the codes that had a special meaning to Apple Writer, it would be executed as an instruction, as a command rather than as text. And it was it was plain text. It was easy to read. It was easy to understand. There was nothing binary or obscure about it, all deliberately. Obviously, I wanted it to be really easy to understand for people to understand. And it did, it did a lot of things. It didn't just format the text. It allowed the introduction of an address, and there would be a separate file consisting of addresses that would be passed through sequentially. As I mentioned before, you could do um, an address list, a mailing list, 
And that was having a mailing list of the Apple II with, with uh, somewhere between 24 and 32 kilobytes of memory. I think people were shocked by that. They thought it was that was pretty slick. Yeah, that is cool. And I think uh, those dot codes uh, went on to be sort of a standard of sorts. I remember using them with uh, various types of printers. And uh, I remember first encountering them in Apple Writer and then they started yeah, uh, showing, that's right. that's, showing up everywhere. It turns out that that became a, a, a the standard for a while anyway, before before a WordPerfect came along and, and reintroduced obscurity. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yeah, it made a lot of sense because there, of course, would not be any reason for a period to be at the start of a line. So it was a very. I'm. I have to throw in a philosophical note here. People who write programs for sale tend to have codes that are obscure and only their own, and uh, concealed from the concealed from the user as much as possible. WordPerfect was an example of that. But even though I was selling Apple Writer and becoming rich because of Apple Writer, I still wanted it to be as easy to use as possible. Oh, I should say something else about that. As soon as Apple Writer became successful, all I could think about was having a free version that I could give away at schools. And so I inquired with Apple. I said, Is it, could I like take a version of this program and tear out some parts of it that, um, that aren't absolutely essential for, for a student like printing? And could I give it away in schools? And they said, sure, yeah, we could, we could. And the, the reason, I think the reason they agreed with it is because they realized it was a great introduction to, uh, the full-fledged program. It would be a lead into the, to the full-fledged version. And all I could think about was the fact that kids in schools had apples, but they didn't have any reasonable programs to learn how to uh, type and learn how to do word processing. So they allowed me to do that. Unfortunately, my program FreeWriter, which I called FreeWriter, somebody grabbed it and called it FredWriter and charged $10 for it. And so FreeWriter disappeared and was replaced by a program that somebody just went, hey, he's giving this away, so therefore I can have it, and I'm going to sell it. So they, they, oh. they took it over. Yeah, I remember. That was my first introduction to the problems of, of what constitutes a free program and what are the intellectual property rights and issues of copyright. That was so long ago that the idea that a program, was, a program or a book or anything else was copyrighted intrinsically without a copyright notice was a new idea or else it hadn't even come along yet. I don't remember which, but it was still novel. And the the market for software was much smaller then. And I didn't actually realize that was going on until a long time later for the reason that I was out on a sailboat sailing around the world. So that, uh, well, that might lead into my next question, which is what um, <laughs> uh, what happened after your Apple II? Like what was the last thing you did on your Apple II? And then uh, what happened to the machine? Yeah, I had... Uh, Basically, Apple Writer and a number of other programs, including Apple World, which was a pretty popular program in those, in those days. Apple World was a 3D visualization program that was quite primitive. But because of the, the fact that the Apple II was out there and it wasn't very expensive, and because people hadn't seen programs like that very often, it became very popular very quickly. And I even was on national television describing it on the air on the, the old Tom Snyder show, which, of course, greatly increased its sales. So that was actually Apple World. I must tell you, Apple World was my first bestseller before Apple Writer. It didn't really make as much money, but it was still, I may be aware of the fact, I was forced to confront the fact that, that I could influence what people thought about computers as well as make some money writing programs because I had to recalibrate my thinking at that time because up until that point, I was just thinking how much fun it was to have a computer and write programs. I wasn't actually thinking about making money until I started making money. And then I, Naturally enough, I started realizing that my bank account, which by then was $500 or something, was that was going to be a big improvement in my lot in life. Anyway, I'm sorry, I, I may have lost the thread of what you were asking me. Uh, so is your Apple II still around somewhere? Do you oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I have my Apple II, which is actually now, it's sitting on a board. 
and there's a, there's a ribbon cable over to another board that has the, the keyboard mounted in it because in those days I wanted to get the system unit out of sight. I didn't need it. All I needed was the keyboard and the display. And now I look at it's the first uh, generation of uh, of personal computers that ha- all had remote keyboards. And it wasn't that they got the idea from me because I never showed it to anybody. It was just that I thought it was a good idea and apparently other people's did too. And I just looked at it today because in preparation for this interview, I tried to get my uh, a mindset looking back at those times. And I, d- I did actually look around at the various things that I've uh, that I looked at today and, and the, the primitiveness of the Apple II and the fact that this this huge motherboard, it's covered from one end to the other with chips, was only able to support 16 kilobytes of RAM. It's just astonishing how things have shrunk. If you have any pictures of that machine, I bet our uh, listeners would love to see that. It's, um, you know, both oh, yeah, okay. Early, early Apple II by the sounds of it. And I could definitely provide pictures. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there's... If there isn't some pictures of it out there on the in the world, but I'll but I have some actually in my files. Uh, well, that was all the questions I had, Mike. Do you have any others? Yeah, I got a couple. Uh, we we like to ask this of we've had a few guests in the past that have spent some time around Apple and the personalities uh, at that time. Um, did you spend a lot of time talking to Waz or anything like? that? Uh, no, actually, um, Waz and I got along famously, but we didn't really spend a lot of time together because. Uh, the way we both worked was very much the same, and so we didn't actually require uh, uh, much time together to figure out what to do next. Steve, on the other hand, was a problem. And I, I have to say about Steve Jobs that when I knew him, he was constantly struggling to be noticed uh, because everybody who showed up said, are you Steve Wozniak? No, I'm Steve Jobs. <laughs> okay, where's Steve Wozniak? <laughs> wow. And uh, that was, I think that affected him. And I think as time went by, he had a, a well-concealed inferiority complex about his role in a technology company because he was just not, you know, he was just not the um, the cutting edge of what was actually taking place. He could he could promote what was taking place, but he couldn't really meaningfully contribute to it. In my opinion, I think that other people differ on that subject, but in my view, he he wasn't actually um, on the cutting edge of what was taking place. He was able to get people excited about computers and promote them. But he, he never really made very much in terms of actually contributing in a technological sense, contrary to what a lot of people think, I might add. It's, it's always interesting to, to hear the perspectives of people looking back at what people were like back then, you know, because uh, as I understand it, jobs got pushed out basically because people couldn't stand him anymore. Yeah, that's he correct. Came back and turned, in, turned Apple into this, you know, multi-billion dollar biggest company in the world. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a complicated story. I think one of the reasons... Um, Remember, this isn't science, that we can't isolate the, the effect that Steve had on the company from other issues that were going on. Like, uh, for example, the people who were running Apple before Steve came back, uh, one, I'll just say this as a, as a theory, not a fact, a, not a statement of fact, but one theory is that they were doing such a bad job of it, they were driving the company into the ground, and anyone would have been a better alternative. At that point, he reappeared, and a lot of people liked him who were outside Apple, who only heard, heard him give speeches about how great computers were, which is something he was really good at, I must say. <laughs> you know, this is an insanely great product that you want in your living room right now. <laughs> and this is a this is a revolutionary product. It's not merely evolutionary and other similar things that he would say. And so that's a little hard to say whether he actually was the reason for the big turnaround because the people who were running the company just before he came back, they weren't technology people at all. And and Steve, at least he understood some of the issues uh, with personal computers because he'd been with Apple since the beginning. So that's a muddy one. And most stories like that that we hear, 
about any company or changes in the economy or anything having to do with society are tainted by the fact that they can never really become science, that you never get to the point where you can say A cost B without any doubt about it. That's a tough one because a lot of people who know A, we're living in a scientific time in history, and B, science has accomplished many great things, that doesn't necessarily mean C, that we can analyze social changes on the basis of scientific analysis. That isn't necessarily the case. So at what point did you, you got on a sailboat and went around the world for a couple of years? Oh, yeah. What, what motivated that and, and how did that come about? What Apple realized was they were paying me a lot of money and they didn't want to do that. And so they contracted with another programmer to create something called AppleWorks, which was actually a better program. And I, as the author of Apple Writer, I can say right out front without the slightest hesitation that AppleWorks was a better program. It had a spreadsheet. It had a database. It was better in every way. And Apple owned it. They were hiring this guy on a salary to write this program. And so AppleWorks came along, and Apple was really tired of paying me a couple or $3 million a year for Apple Writer royalties. They just thought that was outrageous. I didn't think it was outrageous, but I'm spoiled. Anyway, they introduced AppleWorks, and they pushed Apple Writer out of their own marketplace. And so that all happened around 1985, 1986, thereabouts. And I went, well, that's okay. I don't mind. I have enough money now. I can retire, which I did. The funny part was between 86 and 88, when I started sailing around the world, Apple came to me and said, would you like to take over AppleWorks? Uh, the guy that originally uh, wrote it for us is unwilling to cooperate with us anymore. And I said, oh, well, that depends. Are you willing to give it to me and, and pay me royalties? No. So <laughs> that was the end of that story. Oh, I have another story that I have to get in about this. Around the same time also, IBM called me up and said, we know about Apple Writer and how successful it was. We want something like Apple Writer for our new personal computer, the, the PC, our entry system. And I said, okay, we can talk about that. But first, uh, let's talk about the business angle. And I think they were surprised by that. I think they thought that they were going to be talking to a programmer and not a business person. But I went right into the business mode. I said, what kind of a business arrangement are you thinking of before I even talked about the code? Because by then I had been through it so often and been ripped off so often that I was completely transformed into half business, half programmer. So they said, okay, okay, here's our normal deal that with all our programmers, it works like this. We pay you 100000 in royalties after which we own the program. And I said, wait a minute, 100000 You know, that's about 10 days worth of Apple Rider royalties right now. And there was this long pause on the phone line as, they, as the meaning of that sank in. And I guess we agreed not to agree, and nothing happened, came of it. Then they went to John Draper and made him the same offer. Now, I've heard this uh, story through a number of different channels, and I can't verify that it's true. All I can say is that I heard it a number of times. And he wrote a perfectly terrible program, which uh, IBM sold until its terribleness became obvious to everyone, and they voluntarily withdrew it. And then John Draper was rumored to have said, look, they asked for a $100,000 program. I gave them one. Anyway, so after Apple Writer wasn't being sold anymore, I wrote a few more programs, but I decided to do something that, that was per a perfect thing to choose to do at that time in my life. I was 40 years old. I was around, I was approaching 40 years old. I decided to, um, do something I'd always wanted to do was learn how to sail and sail around the world. I bought a small sailboat learned how to sail it. And starting in 1988, from 1988 to 1991, I sailed solo around the world in a small 31-foot sailboat. That was when, uh, I mentioned before, when uh, when Fred Ryder was becoming popular. I had no way of knowing because I was out of the country. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting uh, piece of the story. I, I remember Fred Ryder. I had no idea that it was uh, just a, an ill illicit copy of your uh, free program. Yeah, it was basically a free writer with some printing uh, uh, things written uh, in basic or something that were added on and this person put it on a disc and offered it for sale without bothering to consult with me or acknowledge whatever. It was just outrageous. It was completely outrageous. Yeah, and it, in those days, in those days, things like that just went by. I don't think I would let the same thing happen again now, but I was, as I said, I was doing something else and, and I wasn't very experienced at that copyright issues and ownership issues were just things that maybe I didn't think very much about in those days. Besides, my original intent was to give away my program. So maybe I was a bit confused about exactly what Fred Ryder meant. Now it's, now it's clearer. It's somebody who wanted to make money off of a free program. Uh, since then, I've had a number of similar episodes where people uh, would take one of my free programs and try to offer it for sale. That's unfortunate. Yeah, whatever. I don't I don't actually understand it, but one of the th- things that I used to explain that to myself is that if a person is young enough and they see that something is free, they draw the conclusion based on their inexperience that it means they can take it and sell it if they want to because it's free. And uh, I think that's just something that they have to get more life experience to realize that that isn't true. Do you still actively develop? Software? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have some Android apps. I have four Android apps on the Google Google Play Marketplace. By the way, I, I was I was going to comment about that. When I wrote programs for the Apple, for example, we were talking about Electric Duet. And Electric Duet, everybody out there who might get a copy of Electric Duet, they all had exactly the same machine with exactly the same clock speed, the same display, similar amounts of memory. It was this gigantic marketplace with identical machines. And Android is the opposite. If you write an Android app, it's a nightmare. There's all these different uh, display sizes and even different processors. If you really want to be to cover the waterfront in Android, you have to compile your app, if it uses any native code anyway. You have to compile your app in a bunch of different uh, languages to accommodate different processors, which is why Google is, is uh, enthusiastic about having people write their apps entirely in Java, because then that issue doesn't come up. I've got one app that's very popular, unfortunately, that requires some native code, and it won't run under certain Android devices, only on the, those that have the um, whatever the most common processor is on Android. It'll only run on that one. And it's an example of, a, of an app that you can't do what it does without native code. So I had, I had no choice about moving away from Java, which otherwise I would have written it all in Java because it makes it much more portable. By the way, I do a lot of Java writing, and Java is a language that a lot of people uh, don't like for a number of excellent reasons. But it is portable, and it is out there on a bunch of different platforms. So if I want a program to be portable without having to just worry about portability issues and, and different versions, because until I started writing in Java, I, I started having different versions of apps that I was trying to give away, and it was a great nightmare to make them all work the same way. So there's a lot of interesting languages like Haskell that I, that I haven't even begun to try to experience. And Java seems rather dated, dated and old-fashioned, but it does have... Um, it does have a, a virtual machine on virtually every platform out there, so that's nice. So when you were uh, preparing for your interview today, did you did you turn your old Apple II back on? Nope, didn't do that. I've, I've actually done that um, from time to time lately, but... Oh, that's another story. When, when I first got my Apple II, the storage device was a cassette player, and it would store maybe 16 kilobytes from one end of a 16-minute of a th- tape to the other, and it took forever to read and write, and it was a total nightmare. And so I actually um, negotiated with Apple. I said, I'll give you this program if you'll give me a floppy drive. In those days, floppy drives were $500, more than the cost of a PC now. And it, it was a floppy drive that would store 140 kilobytes. Wow, 140 kilobytes 
I just, I was just took your breath away. Your heart beat a little faster when you heard that gigantic number of storage capacity. It's just, there's transportation experience. It's just amazing. So I flew down to California and I got them to give me a floppy drive, which, which there was a rare commodity in those days. I mean, they, they had, it was a prototype. It was still in the prototype stage, but I knew it would greatly speed up how I accomplished what I was doing. So I basically gave them some program that I thought was pretty cool, and they did too, in trade for one of these drives, which I couldn't just buy it. That was the deal. It was a prototype. I could have given them $500, but I didn't want to. That was a tremendous breakthrough. And then the next thing I discovered was, and I'm saying this for the young people in the audience, you would take this five and a quarter inch floppy drive, which had a little plastic membrane inside it. And you'd slide it into the drive, and you'd close the little door. And when you closed the door, the read-write head would smash down on this little plastic thing, and the drive would spin, grind, 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 which meant that the discs had a finite lifetime. So if you made a backup disc, you had to make a backup disc of your backup disc pretty quickly, because they would wear out so quickly, because they were in physical contact. The, the read-write head was smashed down, pressing against the membrane inside that was spinning at high speed. It was just, from a modern perspective, you know, when I, when I first got one, I thought how sophisticated and modern and terrific it was. But looking back on it, now that I know that, that most hard drives, they have a little airfoil surrounding the head, and the head never touches the medium inside a modern hard drive. It just flies over the top of it. And the whole thing is filled with nitrogen so that the moisture issue isn't an issue etc., etc. And even those drives are being phased out by SSDs. It's just a phenomenal to think back at, especially the, the cassette player. God, that was a pain. <laughs> I would go, well, it's time to back up again. Gee, I'm glad I have several hours to do this. And I would put a new cassette in the player. And, and then things like uh, worrying about that extension cord going through the trees. Could I be writing new code? Oh, 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 another story. I'm writing the code for Apple Writer thinking to myself, gee, it's about time I should really uh, do a backup. And I'm writing away, writing away, writing away. Meanwhile, outside my cabin, the wind is picking up, and the rain starts to fall. And I go, oh, great, this is going to be a distraction. It's very noisy on top of this 400-foot hill when the, when the w- wind and the rain started. And then lightning hit a tree near the house. I'm not making this up. I didn't get a direct lightning strike on the cabin, but there was some peripheral electricity in the air that caused the Apple II to reset itself and zapped all my backup disks. I found out later. I didn't know it at the time. Zapped all my backup disks on the, on the table. And the, uh, the Apple II went from showing a, a screen full of text of the most recent line of code I had just typed in to this uh, monitor display where there's an asterisk showing and a hexadecimal address and a flashing cursor. And I went, oh, my God. Okay, okay. So I went, well, there's one possibility that it just... It was a glitch, and it didn't actually erase the memory of the computer. So I typed in a special instruction that entered my program, and it did enter my program, and the same page came back up. So that was as close as I came to actually losing something. Another story about that, uh, because of the dollar value of Apple Writer, after a couple of years of dealing with that and similar backup experiences, which gradually improved, nevertheless, I would, uh, when I created a new version of Apple Writer, I would put some copies of these floppy disks, these horrible, unreliable floppy disks, in an ammo can, which was waterproof, and bury it outside the house. Not, no kidding. And the reason was, if the house burned down, too bad, I've lost my cabin. But I don't want to also lose my multi-million dollar program. So I, I did this 
ritual where I would bury ammo cans. And this is a, a, a lot of your listeners may not know what an ammo can is. It's kind of a rectangular steel can and it has a, a waterproof seal around the top. And when you close it, it's got a really firm latch and it's actually waterproof. You can drop it in the water and it'll, it'll stay dry inside. So I chose that and I would put two or three copies of whatever the most recent version of my program was. And I would just bury it outside, bury it in the ground. I never actually needed those copies, but it was a good idea anyway. Are they still buried up there? I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) That could be the Apple version of the Atari dump dig. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, have a metal detector farm experience out there with people looking for these artifacts of bygone eras. (laughs) Very early example of off-site backups, I guess. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Off-surface backups. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, Paul, so... Where can our listeners find you on the web and internets and arachnoid.com. My my website, which I I am constantly adding things to, is arachnoid.com. A R A C H N O I D dot C O M. I I have this um a rather pragmatic attitude that if if I'm really gonna write a program and I want it to be noticed then it might as well have a name that starts early in the alphabet. Makes sense. So arachnophilia. <laughs> I've never written a program that I can remember anywhere that's anywhere near the end of the alphabet. I haven't written any programs starting with X, Y, or Z. And I, I, I want to emphasize once again that when I thought I could own a computer, it was such a shock because I, I had always imagined, you know, like an if only kind of a thought. If only, if only I had a computer, well, I could solve this kind of a matrix problem. It would be much simpler, blah, blah, blah. And I, I did that for years without ever thinking about the fact that it might actually come to pass. Uh, oh, by the way, another thing I should mention is that for about five years before the first personal computer appeared, I was writing programs on programmable calculators to solve some of the problems I was so desperate to solve, both in work and just out of intellectual curiosity. And I had a slew of programmable calculator programs that I had published in magazines, where people had got the magazine and then typed in the instructions, maybe 40 or 50 instructions, into a hand calculator in order to run the program. It was even harder than cassette drives in terms of read-write. It was such a pain. But people were willing to do it because it meant they could solve certain kinds of problems that were otherwise impossible to solve. That's interesting because I know that Waz was working uh, yes. with HP yes. for many years in their calculator division. That's right. That's right. Now that you mention it, I had, I had forgotten that. That's true. The old HP, everything was absolutely as close to perfection as they could get it. And HP had a fantastic reputation among engineers that was deserved. And now HP is just another company. They've given up on the, the, the picture that I had of HP, that everybody had of HP in the 60s and 70s, was of the top-line, high-quality, leave-nothing-to-chance, terrific company. And now they're just another Me Too company out there. They've basically sold their birthright. Too bad. And now they're making inkjet printers. <laughs> yeah, not very good ones. Yeah, commodities. And the, and they're and they're putting their brand on things that they buy from third parties, which is a very common practice. Didn't they buy? They bought Deck at one point and yeah. Compaq. And- yeah, hoping to turn them into commodities, but uh, for, for one reason or another, they didn't work out. Oh, one one more one more. Uh, I, I after the royalties came came in, and I was up in the multi million dollar range. I said to my accountant, I said, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm going to give most of this. I have enough money now to be retired and be comfortable. I'm going to start giving any more royalties away to charity, various charities that I wanted, Planned Parenthood in particular. And my accountant said, you can't do that. I said, what? You mean I can't do that? You mean I'm forced to take this income? I said, yeah, here's how it works. (laughs) After you you, uh, give away half your income, you have to pay taxes on the remainder regardless of whether you've given it away. In other words, you can only deduct 
as charitable contributions, 50% of your income. I hadn't heard that one. And so what that meant was that if I gave away uh, more than about half, in those days the tax rates were higher, I'd end up paying taxes more in taxes than I actually had left over as income for that year. So I had to give up on that idea. I thought it was that was extremely weird, and I, it was one of many things I learned about money during those years that I that I naively thought I knew about money until I actually had it discovered that I didn't actually. Paul, thank you for for joining us on on Open Apple. Uh, it was definitely great to hear your perspective on early Apple history and uh, your experiences with the application development and, and the people that were involved. You're most welcome. I was really glad to take part. All right, so that was a that was a great interview actually with Paul Lutus, and we didn't have to do a whole lot of work, did we? You just tossed him a ball and he ran with it. Yeah, interesting guy with a lot of really interesting stories. So we sure appreciate his time. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple Two News. For starters, probably one of the best weeks in Apple Two GS history. Boo, boo. I'm <laughs> kidding. You're just sad because there's no Transwarp 3. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a little uh, a little broken up about the fact that I can't accelerate my my Apple 3 past like 1.2 megahertz or whatever it is. So, Well, it certainly accelerated itself into obscurity. <laughs> oh, zing. Thank you. Thank you very much. But uh, yeah, as if, uh, if anyone hasn't figured it out yet, we are, of course, talking about the clone of the Transwarp GS that Reactive Micro has been toiling away on in their salt mine of awesomeness, and it's finally available. Very, very exciting. This is not the first time that a, a Transwarp clone has been promised, but it looks like they're actually going to deliver, unlike the past efforts. And uh, I, I had a discussion with Sean Fahey, who's kind of been there doing a lot of PR for Reactive Micro recently, and he talked about how they did have to shave down one of these things. And uh, I know that they haven't put a price on it yet or anything. It's definitely still early on in development, but he did point out that, you know, there's a lot of silicon on this this board, and, and it's not going to be, you know, $85 for, for one of these things. On the other hand, it will be a reliable source if you want to get one, and it's going to be you know, new equipment that's backed up by a warranty. And so you're, you're not dealing with, you know, well, maybe maybe I got a broken one from eBay. Maybe it works. Maybe it only goes to 8 megahertz, and I can't accelerate it past that. So um, I'm looking forward to, to playing with one of these. Yeah, this is a huge win for the community. The, a, a clone of the Transwarp has been a unicorn for so long. Like you say, it's been promised and talked about, and people said it couldn't be done for a long time. I personally thought it probably couldn't be done. I thought it was just too complex, and there was too, too much custom silicon on it. But boy, hats off to, to Reactive Micro. They, they really nailed it. Uh, the pictures of it, you know, this is a real thing, uh, are, are available online. And of course, we'll link to that in the show notes. So this is very exciting. Even if it comes in a little less, I'm sure it'll be less than what they go for on eBay. They go for just silly money on eBay. and These uh, days, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so even if it's yeah any, anywhere below that is a huge win because, like you say, for the same, same or less money, you're getting a brand new product that you know will work. And uh, it looks like they're all going to 16 megahertz, too, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Because, of course, the old Transwarps, some of them could be accelerated up that high, but it depended a lot on, you know, how lucky you happen to get with the quality of your particular board and, you know, how good some of the chips and traces were and so on. So uh, since these are, you know, newly engineered and brand new products, they're ship shape. Yeah, this is going to be fantastic. And uh, we are lucky enough here at OpenApple to uh, Henry's 
uh, going to be shipping Henry uh, Corbus of Reactive Micro is going to be shipping us a a preview unit, and um, well, I will get to play with it. Um, crumble, and crumble, I would crumble. Have I, well, I would have recommended that he send it to you, except that somebody left her GS up in Calgary. So. Yeah, well, I could put it next to my 2C+, and they could be friends. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to playing with that, and uh, we'll have a, a report on, on an upcoming episode. I'm sure there will be plenty of pictures. I know I'm not the only one that's going to get one, so look, uh, Sean will get one, and I think... Um, maybe Stavros is, is on the list and a couple of other people. There will definitely be pictures and reports as as they get closer to release on that. Yeah, and I'm sure it will make an appearance at Kansas Fest this year. Oh, yeah. And uh, as if that wasn't enough, the fountain of awesome that is Reactive Micro continues with uh, their newly produced version of the Nose Lock Clock, which for people like myself actually is going to be great for 2Cs and, and such. Uh, if anyone isn't aware, the, of course, the no-slot clock was this chip that you could stick in your Apple II to give you a slot, uh, a slot, a clock. <laughs> and uh, as, as is suggested by the name, it uh, didn't use a slot, which was quite a big deal at the time. You know, and again, this is one of those things that it's super nice to have. I think we forget nowadays because, of course, we take it for granted that computers have clocks in them. Well, of course they do, but uh, they didn't used to. And so if you're dealing with file systems and so on without a clock it's a bit of a hassle to you know there's no dates on anything and it's uh it's a nice thing to have and it's another one of these things that goes for ridiculous money on ebay and of course the additional gotcha with these is that they had they were those old dallas style uh, clock chips that uh, if they still work uh, the batteries in them if they still work then uh, they wouldn't for long or you know they would be leaking so uh, that's definitely not, unlike the Transwarp, that's something where you really probably don't want to buy it online, honestly, uh, because the 20 or 30 year old ones are not going to be reliable. Uh, so this is very exciting, and I'm definitely going to be on the list for this one. Dallas Semiconductor, um, they were purchased by Maxim Integrated, I think, back in 2001 or so. And they actually continued to make these up into like 2005 or six, and when they were finally discontinued. And there are vendors on eBay that, that do have large collections of these, and they're, they're selling them. And you can get those for 10 to $20, but you never know whether you're going to get one of the newer ones or one that was produced back in 1981, the battery's dead. And the the additional good news about Henry's version is it's a low profile, so it will fit in your 2C uh, with a memory card, which was not possible with one of the, the Dallas boards. Uh, so that's, that's a really great thing. And it's, it has a replaceable battery. Yeah, it's a super nice design. Uh, we'll have the photos of this in the show notes as well. You know, using the, the sort of the power of, of modern uh, components, which are much smaller, they've managed to sort of squish everything in between, uh, you know, the rows of, of dual inline package pins. And so, yeah, the replaceable lithium battery and the clock chip and everything are all just sandwiched right in there. And it has the same vertical profile as a regular dip chip. It's really, really, I just, I love the design of this thing. Yep. And the other item that's that everybody's talking about that uh, is coming from reactive micro is the scalable oscillator for the the transwarp gs so the way this works is is you pop it in there and you put your super fast oscillator chip in there and then it has a a bank of dip switches that you can use to set it at, at whatever speed you want i think it goes by it steps by like a quarter of a megahertz at a time and there um, i know stavros is stavros i'm sorry stavros i don't know how to pronounce your last name 
He's got one running on his uh, Zip GSX as well. I think he had to modify it a little bit or put some spacers in there or something, but it will work on that board. It's nice because this saves you from having to have like a drawer full of different oscillators if you want to play around with the speed. I don't know how, I mean, I, I think for most users, what's going to happen is they'll buy this, they'll find a, a speed that they're comfortable with, and then they'll never touch it again. So, but if you're a tweaker type and you like to play around with stuff like this, this saves you from sw constantly swapping in and out these oscillators. You can't set it in software, so you know you have to power it down and set the dip switches and then bring it back up. So there, there is that. It, it does sit a little bit oddly on the transwarp board itself, so it's kind of hard to get to when you're doing this and Henry sent me, when he sent me one of these, fortunately he said these, there's, he sent the kind of the beta version of the instructions, which has a chart that tells you uh, how to set the dip switches for the speed you want. Because if you don't have that, there's this weird math formula that you have to, f to follow. And if you lose this chart, man, it's uh, yeah, you can do the math, but you really want to make copies of that chart and turn it into PDFs and post it everywhere you can, because it is a bit complicated setting the speed that you want. If you don't have that in front of you. Yeah, this thing is uh, really a, kind of an overclocker's dream, I'm sure, as anyone knows who's tried to overclock anything, really. It's very much up to chance and the weather and the quantum details of your particular device <laughs> as far as how high it goes. So you really need or you want something like this where you can kind of turn up the speed until it breaks, essentially, and then turn it down a notch, and that's where it'll sit. So without having to buy handfuls of oscillators and mess around with soldering and so on, this is a very cool thing to be able to just plug in and, and dial up your, your GS and just see how high it'll go. And then, like you say, you know, you'll probably find a speed and leave it there. Uh, but it's still a great tool for finding that speed. Absolutely. I'd kind of forgotten just how great Reactive Micro is. They're not a sponsor of the show or anything. I just love their products. And I remember kind of, you know, when they shut down, how disappointing that was. But, you know, as time passes on, you kind of just assume that, oh, well, that's not available to us anymore. So uh, when they come back and they come back with these great products, it's sort of a, it's, you know, like a refreshing cool drink of water to to be able to have this again. So to the to the guys who are, are behind this and doing doing the work, we, we really appreciate everything that, that you're doing for the community. Definitely. Reactive Micro has come back into the Apple II community like a hurricane, and they've just dropped these products that are just incredible. By the handful, they're just dropping amazing products on us. Uh, so this is just fantastic. Great time for Apple II. Yeah. And speaking of great times and great news, um, there's some Kansas Fest news. You want to talk about that? Yeah, this is, I am just tickled about this. I'm so excited. When they released this news onto the Kansas Fest mailing list, I was bouncing off the walls. Uh, they've announced the keynote speaker for Kansas Fest 2015. And it's none other than Rebecca Heinemann, who might be better known as Burger Becky. She's just a legend in the Apple II community uh, game developing. Uh, I think most people probably know her for her 2GS contributions. Uh, of course, most recently, uh, Wolfenstein. But, uh, you know, she also did uh, Bard's Tale and Dragon Wars and uh, Crystal Quest and um, Task Times in Tone Town. You know, she's just got a, a rock star Apple II resume and I'm a huge fan. So this is just really, really exciting. I am... 
excited and looking forward to to hearing her keynote because I you know I follow her on Twitter and she participates in the Kansas Fest list and a couple of other Apple II resources. I, I think the Apple II enthusiast group on Facebook and uh, it's always great to hear her stories and and the you know about the the effort that went in kind of behind the scenes on the, on the different projects that she worked on. I think she also was a big part of that effort to port Ultima 1 to the 2GS. There was a, spe- a specific 2GS version of Ultima 1 that was released, and, and she was part of that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't be more excited to see this. Yeah, she's, uh, she's one of these people that I, I describe as quietly awesome. You know, she's out there doing this stuff uh, and maybe isn't getting a lot of attention for it, but then... You know, you look at her at her profile, say on LinkedIn, and you realize just how extensive you know her resume is. Or on the uh, Apple II enthusiasts group, this happens all the time. People are talking about some great game or whatever, and she'll just pipe in and be like, "Oh yeah, I wrote that." <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it's a thrill. So I, honestly, uh, second to Waz, I mean, I can't think of a better uh, keynote speaker for Kansas Fest, and uh, I'm just really really excited for this. And of course, if you want to go see Becky in, in person for the keynote, you can do that. Um, Kansas Fest happens in July. The dates have been announced. Registration is expected to open in April. So it may or may not be open by the, the time this actually gets posted. So um, and when, when that does happen, we'll, we'll have that news for you as well. And in case anyone missed it, the uh, dates for Kansas Fest this year are July 14th through the 19th. So you should definitely head on over to the Kansas Fest website and sign up in April when registration is open. And make your travel plans now because it's cheaper to buy flights and tickets and and hotel rooms than to to wait until the week or two beforehand. And both of your Open Apple co-hosts will certainly be there. Come and say hi. Or throw rotten fruit at me or something. (laughs) Say hi to her and throw something at me. Yeah, you can if you've ever wanted to send your hate mail to Mike in person, uh, <laughs> this is your chance instead of just by, by email. You can type it out and hand deliver it. Yeah, that that personal touch, you could even hand write it. I'm sure that Quinn will be doing that so you guys can join in the fun. Yeah, I'm thinking about learning calligraphy just for the occasion. <laughs> just okay. like hand write you hate mail. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> but I don't hate what you've been doing over there at 6502 Lane. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so a year or two, well, probably close to two or three years now. It's Time speeds up, I guess, when you get older. Bill Garber sent me a box of Don Worth's diskettes. Uh, Don Worth, of course, was the author, primary author of uh, Beneath Apple DOS, Beneath Apple ProDOS, Beneath Apple Manor. Um, he's written a lot of really great, uh, very important titles and work for the Apple II community. And a while back, he was cleaning out his basement and garage and Gave some stuff away on Facebook, and and Bill got his discs, and I got some manuals, and some other people got some stuff, and uh, Bill decided that he wasn't going to have time to to deal with those, and so he sent the discs to me, and they've been sitting on my shelf collecting dust until uh, a week or two ago, and I decided, you know, it's probably time to put these out there where they're actually useful to to some folks, so uh, I I have um, this uh, device, device side data makes a a board called the FC5025, 5.25, get it? Uh, which is useful for you can use a, a PC compatible five and a quarter inch drive, plug it into this board, which will then plug by USB into your Mac or PC, and it'll image your Apple II discs. So if you don't want to deal with firing up your Apple II and, and using ADT Pro, this is a this is an alternative. The problem that the problem that I had was that this board doesn't really do error handling all that well. It'll if it runs into an error, it does have uh, it is robust enough to say, oh, uh, there's an error here, and, and continue to to finish the image, so so you don't lose the whole thing. But 
what happens is if you have a disk that's got bad sectors, you'll end up with dead files in the disk image. And unfortunately, a lot of the disks Don sent me had these errors in them. Uh, so some of the data is trashed, but I was uh, was able to go ahead and post them. They're, they're somewhere just fine. This box had um, the original text files that Don wrote when he was putting together Beneath Apple DOS. Uh, there's the, the Beneath Apple Manor source code, which does have a bad file in it. Uh, and some of the other games and things that he published through quality software and, and through his own company. Uh, those are now available if you want to go take a look and play with them. Uh, I don't know, I, you know because the because of the source code problem. Like for example, with Beneath Apple Manor, I, you can't compile a working copy from that, but you can at least look and see mostly what what he did there. So uh, kind of feels like it, it feels nice to be able to preserve a little bit of Apple history there. Uh, I really like looking through the source code for these old uh, software packages. There's always a lot to learn. And this is, I think, really neat that you've got these, you know, original word processing documents. Of course, you know, we've got PDF scans of the final published versions of these books. Mm -hmm. But you so often or so rarely get to see this original, you know, draft in the original word processor format that, uh, that the book was written in. So I think that's just a really fun little bit of archaeology. Yeah, it's sort of a, a way to, like you said, there's all these documents that we scan now are PDFs of, of printed Final copies and or or even preview copies and that that's great. There's you know it's it's wonderful to have those, but it is fun when somebody didn't handwrite something or type or do it by typewriter. Uh, to, you know he wrote it in a word processor and you can actually go through and look at the files that he that he was working on at the time with these disk images. I, I like stuff like this just because it's really early examples of personal computers being used for real work. Uh, I think. So many of us, our only experience with these machines was playing games or the occasional school paper. So this was, you know, real work for real money that was done on these really early computers. And, uh, you know, it's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, uh, I guess it's like the archaeologist wants to find the clay pot with the chipped edge and the initials carved in it and the old food in the bottom. They don't want to find the pot <laughs> on the, you know, on the shelf in the store because that's not interesting. Right. So they, you know, a pot that's, dinged up and has food in the bottom tells a story of someone's life. And to me, that's kind of what this is. This is this document tells the story of someone spending quality time, real time with the computer and using it for something that made their life better, you know, made their work more efficient. This was better than a typewriter. This was better than handwriting it. This was real progress being made with uh, really early computers. Very exciting. Yep. Obviously, this isn't something you're going to necessarily want to print out and try to make your own manual with because you know, where in the printed versions of Beneath Apple DOS, there are diagrams and in, in Don's text, it says simply, you know, insert image 1.1 here. So <laughs> you're not going to get that. And um, there are some there are some typos in there. He wrote it in a program called PyWriter. And what's nice about PyWriter is that, you know, Paul talked earlier in the show about using the dot commands and things. And, and PyWriter had a, a sort of a a crude version of, of that. And you could chain the files together. So as you're hitting spacebar to page through this, you only have to load up, you know, the first CH1 chapter one file. And when it comes to the end, it'll just load up the next chapter and you can keep right on reading. Yeah, safe to say, if you want to read the books, just go get the PDFs and read the books. These are <laughs> right. uh, just interesting as uh, historical artifacts, I think. So thank you, Don, for, for making those available to, to us to preserve and, and put out there for people. Definitely. So I, I was playing with a Raspberry Pi a little bit today, but it uh, looks oh. like I could be doing something Apple II related with it. Ivan Drucker, uh, also known as Ivan X, 
has uh, updated his A2 server, A2 cloud, and Raspel 2 to work on the, the Pi A+, and the new 2B boards. I guess they were different enough that they they warranted an update, and you can get those now from his website. Yeah, he's, he's given me a difficult decision now because I have uh, a Raspberry Pi uh, A+, uh, that I actually won at Kansas Fest last year. And uh, Yeah, so a little full, full circle here. And uh, I've actually been using it. I, I recently, uh, like we were talking about earlier uh, or before the show here, Mike, I recently got a 3D printer for uh, my birthday. Uh, it was happy birthday to me from me, love me. <laughs> and I wanted to get Aww. something. I wanted to get something ridiculous and uh, impractical that I would never normally buy for myself. So I bought a 3D printer. It's a lot of fun, and I'm using my Raspberry Pi to manage it. So this is a common thing that people do. They use the software called OctoPrint that will run your 3D printer without a computer attached to it, which is a good thing because 3D printers are very cool and precise and neat, but fast is something they are not. And so complex (laughs) prints often take many, many hours, even days, which is not something that anyone uh, ever tells you when you're looking at these things is how slow they are. Uh, So anyway, OctoPrint on the Raspberry Pi is a cool way to uh, deal with that problem. And uh, so I've been using it for that, but now I want to use it for A2 server and A2 cloud. Hmm. Thanks a lot, Ivan. Now I might have to buy a second one. Well, fortunately, they're only $35 or something like that. That is true. Yes. What an age we live in. (laughs) So in other news, a new version of Peersoft is now available. This is a very cool little AppleSoft programming utility that lets you do a lot of stuff in AppleSoft that you normally wouldn't think that you could. For example, it has uh, support for interrupts. So if you want to do uh, mouse stuff on your Apple IIc or vertical blank interrupts on your later uh, IICs that have vertical blank interrupts, you can do that in AppleSoft with Peersoft. And oh, handy. Yeah, it's it's very cool. And he's also got uh, it's also got uh, symbolic uh, pre-computed go-tos and go-subs in it which uh, are much, much faster than AppleSoft's interpreted ones. For for anyone who isn't familiar, the way AppleSoft actually does go-subs and go-tos is actually really, really slow. It actually scans from uh, where you are in the program uh, down looking for the line number. So uh, as many uh, hardcore AppleSoft programmers know, uh, forward go-subs and go-tos are always faster than uh, reverse ones because if you go-sub or go-to backwards in your program, it has to scan through the entire program and then go back to the top and keep scanning until it hit, until it finds that line number. So it's very inefficient. Uh, so he's got these pre-computed ones that don't have to do all that. Very nice little utility. So if you're a serious AppleSoft programmer, you should definitely check it out. And the 1.5 update has just been released and it's got uh, some some new features in there, and uh, you can we'll have a link to the A2 Central page where he's got a post that talks about the specifics there. But I think it's really great to see. Again, this is another example of a programming tool um, that is has not only just been put out there for use by the community, but continues to be supported and updated by the author. And I think that's really great. This is coming from a fellow out of France. Lots of cool Apple II stuff going on in France. Yeah, it's, uh, it's got to be those Brutal Deluxe guys. Yeah, it's, and, they're spreading their influence. I don't think Benoit is part of uh, Brutal Deluxe, but uh, yeah, uh, vive la France. <laughs> yeah, France seems to be the one European country where the Apple II really uh, got a foothold, uh, especially the 2GS was very uh, very lo- well-loved there. seems like most of Europe was really more into the, uh, the Commodores and the Amigas and uh, to some degree the Ataris. Yeah, the Apple II definitely found a home in France. It's it's interesting to to see those um, 
the, the geographical, I guess, influences, if you want to call them that now. You know, like you said, it caught on big in France and uh, pretty big in Australia, but, you know, not so big in some of the other surrounding countries. Very, very interesting. There's a lot of history there. I'm sure it has to do with various aspects of whatever particular deals the companies could get in different markets and uh, to some degree probably how well they supported different languages. You know, I know they made, for example, bilingual Apple IIs for Canada. When I was growing up, we had the bilingual Apple IIs in our uh, classrooms and it was cool. You had a, a little switch under the keyboard that would swap in an alternate character set. I would, it would overlay part of the character ROM with uh, accented characters. So it would replace certain curly braces and other rarely used characters would get replaced with, you know, the, the accent aigu and the accent grave and stuff that French uses. And uh, it was a neat little thing. So, uh, you know, I imagine the fact that, that existed made the Apple II much more usable uh, in France and uh, other French-speaking areas. Uh, Quebec, we love you. <laughs> uh, as a sort of not exactly Apple II related, but I recently uh, read that the reason that the uh, Atari 8-bits, for example, were so uh, popular in Poland, of all places, was because uh, Jack Tramiel was uh, trying to find new markets. When he was running Atari, he was trying to find new markets for uh, the Atari 8-bit machines, and there hadn't really been any penetration in Europe yet. And uh, he was from Poland himself, and so he had business connections in Poland. So he was able to get the machines in there for uh, a low price, very inexpensively. And uh, that created a legacy. There's a large community there to this day. Apparently, a lot of the best Atari 8-bit stuff comes out of Poland. So I think uh, a lot of those types of miscellaneous connections between people and companies are a lot of the reason why certain 8-bits landed in certain countries and not others. It's always interesting to hear the the inside story, you know, years down the road as to why things happened or, you know, why a design turned out the way it did or where these computers went. So if I did have an Apple II with slots in it, which I don't at the moment, I would not be able to get a CFFA as much as I might want one. But uh, looks like I might be able to get something else. Is that right? Well, you could uh, briefly. Last month we talked about there was a an ad placed in the, well, not, I don't know if it was an ad, but uh, an image that was placed in the Apple II enthusiast group on Facebook announcing the um, coming of the classic IDE2 from Technobytes. And not much more information was given than that. Well, since then, a couple of me more messages uh, have been posted and more information has come out. Uh, and on, I guess, March 15th, they opened a, a, a reservation list of uh, 50 cards. They said this run would be for 50 cards and it, it filled up in like a day or a day and a half. So you can no longer be a part of that, but you can still go to their website and sign up for a future list. And, uh, and that will give them, um, that will indicate to them the interest, uh, as to whether they should do another run further down the road, because if nobody's interested beyond that 50 or 60 people, then, um, obviously they're not going to make more. So just because you can't get on this list doesn't mean you shouldn't go and sign up. Uh, what this is, is it's a, it's an IDE, uh, board for the Apple II. It's based on Rich Dreher's uh, CFFA 2.0 design. Cards are shipping from, uh, I guess, Technobytes is located in Brazil. And with the current exchange rate, it's going to cost you about $108 for the card and shipping. That's not bad. Not bad at all. For anyone, I don't know, I suppose everyone knows this, but IDE is, of course, a, a PC drive standard or interface standard that's typically used with hard drives, especially in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I think probably the most 
typical usage pattern for this for an Apple II user would be to uh, attach a compact flash adapter. There are trivial adapters that you can get for uh, attaching compact flash cards to IDE devices, but I suppose uh, you could also use it with a, an IDE hard drive if you were so inclined. Yeah, and in fact, I think the the first one of these for uh, the Apple II, or at least one of the first ones, was the focus drive that um, was sold. Um, I forget get the company that that made it initially because I don't have that in front of me. Tony Diaz now sells them through uh, his 16 sector store. Um, and what that was, was it's, it was an IDE card and it came with a, a an IBM mini a micro drive or uh, other, I think they could also get a, a Hitachi IDE drive with that. But uh, those switched over very simply to, um, to using the C to the compact flash card. I don't know if they ever, if anyone ever then adapted it to the SD card, but, and I, I don't know if Tony is currently shipping that item. So it's nice to know that, and with the CFFA being sold out that we do have, it looks like another potential source, at least that's shipping 50 units and hopefully more than that. Yeah, this is good news. If, if you want a compact or rather, if you want a solid state storage solution for your Apple II right this minute, it's a, we're a little bit light on options right now uh, with the CFFA being unavailable and this list being sold out and Nishida Radio is on hiatus. So, uh, you know, there's the SD card, the SD Floppy 2 uh, from, uh, I want to say Plamen is his name. I apologize once again for uh, mangling your name, <laughs> but uh, we love your uh, SD Floppy 2. The fellow from Bulgaria that makes those, and uh, those seem to be still available. But uh, at the moment, we're in a little bit of a, a drought of availability. There's tons of devices out there, but their uh, uh, production runs all seem to have aligned incorrectly at the moment. We're in a, a lowest common denominator period here where you, you uh, can't seem to get any of them right now. Well, there's also the uh, the S-Disc 2 emulator that we talked about last month and caused me a bit of confusion between that and the S-Disc Floppy 2. Um, SD Floppy 2. That's it. Yes, and uh, so so the the one the S disc two that that's made from a gentleman in Korea. I think I had said his name was Lan Kim, but it's actually it actually is Ian. Um, he I think you can buy those from him still. He had also he's also announced that he is working on a new Mockingboard compatible sound card for the Apple II. That's in development. It's not available yet, but uh, he's got a nice little write up on on the the development in progress on his web page, and and it's nice also because. He's, this isn't like a first-time developer who's announced something and we don't know whether he's able to deliver. Ian has, has made and shipped devices for the Apple II, so there's a pretty good chance that this is not just going to be um, vaporware. Yeah, he's got a lot of really cool stu- uh, projects on his website. He's been flying under the radar a little bit. You don't hear, he doesn't get nearly the press that, you know, Nishida Radio or some of the other sort of hobbyist slash uh, small-time producers of these parts gets. But he's doing a lot of interesting things. I, I, I wonder if he's uh, the uh, Korean alter ego of uh, the Bulgarian fellow because they're both doing <laughs> uh, very similar things at the moment. I know that uh, Plamen is also uh, making some uh, inroads into uh, emulating or creating new sound-related devices for the Apple II. I think he's actually doing something slightly different, uh, something more along the lines of like a, a symphonic type of card. True. But, uh, yeah, a mocking a new mocking board would be great. That's uh, one of those unusual peripherals that are uh, quite cool to have, but don't don't uh, often come up on eBay. And when they do, they go for a lot of money. So. I have this vision in my head that uh, sort of based on the old Pirates of Silicon Valley scene, where Steve Jobs calls up Bill Gates and Bill flies down to his house, and so that Steve can scream at him in the middle of the night. Or, 
Plowman calls up Ian, and Ian has to fly out there and listen to him being uh, screaming about how he's stealing his Mockingbird <laughs> device. I'm sure that's not what's happening. For That's just where my head went on this. <laughs> well, thanks to the power of the internet, uh, Apple II users everywhere have access to cool devices from Korea to Bulgaria and everywhere in between. Yeah, and it's, it's a testament to, to the, you know, we talk about a lot, the, the open nature of Waz's design that 30, 40 years later, we can still uh, come up with new and interesting things for the Apple II to do. Pretty amazing. So speaking of Apple II internals, uh, those of us who like to program these machines have hopefully by now all acquired Chris Torrance's excellent book, Assembly Lines, the complete book. I have certainly been thoroughly enjoying my hardcover copy. Thanks once again, Chris, for that. If you have not purchased a uh, hardcover copy, or perhaps you have, uh, but you also want the PDF, which I uh, personally also love a PDF for reference on my iPad, uh, the PDF version is uh, now available on archive.org for free. How amazing is that? That's really great. And uh, Chris has a little uh, video if you go to the webpage uh, of him talking about kind of how the book came about and his work with Roger Wagner. I know when we had him on the show a few months back before, right before the book came out, and that was a a great interview, and he was a lot of fun to talk to. And, and one of the things that he brought up was he wasn't sure you know, whether he would do a, an ebook version and what that might look like. And it looks like this. And so we thank you, Chris, for, for making this resource available to us. Yeah, I think a lot of people have been waiting for this. If you want to learn assembly language programming on the Apple II, I can't think of a better book, honestly. This thing is just fantastic. I've really, really been enjoying it. And uh, I think the main reason for me personally to download this is because I want to see if I can make the cursor flipbook in the corner work by scrolling really fast <laughs> on my iPad. For anyone who missed it, we talked about that last uh, month, how there seems to be an Easter egg in the lower right corner of Chris's book. Uh, if you uh, do kind of like a flipbook sort of thing with the pages, uh, you get the Apple II's blinking cursor in the corner, and it's awesome. And, of course, Chris hasn't written in to confirm that, but uh, we're pretty sure that's what's going on. Yeah, Dagan called it out on the Facebook page, Dagan Brock, uh, sort of local 2GS celebrity, and uh, I had also uh, noticed it. In fact, uh, Dagan called it out on the Facebook page uh, while we were recording uh, last month's episode. Maybe he was listening. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it hadn't gone out yet, but yeah, maybe he's uh, hiding in my closet. <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> All right, so next is a, a project from uh, somebody named Jason Griffiths, who this is, he looks like he has the apple2oz.com domain. Um, not somebody I had heard of before, uh, but he is developing a version of Apple II Pong and is looking for um, developers to help him out. It's, uh, I guess, going to be an open source Pong game. So what do you think about this, Quinn? This is pretty interesting. It's uh, it's interesting to see people uh, doing kind of collaborative open source projects on, uh, on the Apple II. You know, that's a very uh, modern concept. We have all these modern tools for collaborative open source development, things like GitHub and SourceForge and so on. So it's interesting to see someone uh, do this with with an old uh, Apple II project, uh, but also with something as interesting or as uh, sort of basic as Pong. And I think this could be a really great uh, learning experience for anyone who wants to, you know, get the experience of collaborative software development and also learn some uh, basic software development. So uh, yeah, it looks like he's uh, writing it in Integer Basic, which is a, a fun, uh, very entry-level kind of programming project that will run on, I guess, every Apple II in history. <laughs> I think Integer <laughs> Basic is the lowest common denominator, I think. Uh, yeah, he's got uh, a prototype up and running, and he's got a list of new features that he's looking for help from people to write. So if you're looking to get your feet wet with Integer Basic, this looks like a fun collaborative way to do it. 
So speaking of programming projects, Bill Buckles has been very busy with double high-res graphics. Yeah, so he's uh, been working on this BMP to SHR uh, conversion program. Um, I think it's actually think BMP to DHR, isn't it? Well, this particular one is called. He's uh, the message in front of me says that it's, he's rewriting a program called BMP to SHR. So this might actually oh, okay. be one of his earlier programs ah, for okay. this is super, super high res on the two GS. Okay. And he's uh, rewriting that and has been making some good progress. Has been posting pictures and talking about uh, the development. And I think we talked a little bit about one of his other programs, maybe the DHR one, in another episode. And, and you kind of mentioned that this is, you know, basically it's a whole lot of color theory. So if you're into that sort of, if, if you like nerding out about color theory and, and that sort of thing, uh, this is a great thing to follow along. Yeah, so not to be confused, as I just did, with BMP to DHR, which is Bill's double high-res conversion program for, for, for BMPs, which for anyone who doesn't know, BMP is the, it's a common uh, modern image format that you'll see on PCs and sometimes Macs. And uh, so he's been working on these utilities for converting to double high-res, and he's been kind of doing like a picture-a-day thing on the uh, Apple II enthusiasts' uh, Facebook page. So it's fun to see uh, all the different images that he's been converting, and uh, they, look, they look great. And in this particular case, the, the output is uh, for Apple IIgs super high-res uh, mode. So that's pretty cool. The graphics mode that rules them all. That's right. <laughs> we've, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but one of my favorite things about the 2GS, well, obviously the high-res, the super high-res graphics, but it was more than that. You know, there's lots of computers that have, from that era, that have fancy graphics modes. But the super high-res mode as a programmer is exactly what you always wanted a graphics mode to be. You know, it's this big solid block of linear memory that has just the palette entries in it and scanline interrupts and it does everything you want. There's no artifacting, there's no uh, strange rules about what colors can go where, uh, <laughs> you know, it does everything seamlessly as far as palette animation goes and so on. It's it's just, yeah, it's exactly the graphics mode you want. You know, a lot of the other machines of the time that had fancy graphics like the Amiga and the Atari ST and so on, while they were capable of impressive displays, the graphics hardware was a lot more complex. You know, they used bit planes or they used, uh, you know, palettes on different, different palettes on different parts of the screen that you had to coordinate or, you know, they had uh, various other sort of tricky requirements to make uh, the the pretty graphics. So the 2GS was literally just a big block of pixels and you shoved them out and they appeared on the screen and it was awesome. So hooray for super high res. If only the machine had been a little faster, <laughs> it would have been the perfect machine. Well, with the, uh, the, the new Transwarp GS coming out, it can be the perfect ah, machine. Full circle. Nicely done, Mr. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of none of that, uh, I see something very cool <laughs> nice. going on on archive.org. That's uh, my fallback segue there. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about 4am yeah so if you're not following 4am on Twitter you're really doing yourself a, a disservice as, a, as an Apple II fan definitely um, we don't really know who 4am uh, is and, and that's part of the fun I think um, but this person he or she has been uh, hard at work cracking a, a huge amount of, of Apple II software most of which has not been cracked before or has been badly cracked so parts of the program are missing or you know you it, it breaks when you walk into a certain bar in a certain area 4am's collection is uh, and I think it's probably been available on archive.org for a while now but we haven't really talked about it so uh, if you go over to to archive.org and take a look you can get not only all of the the cracked versions of the software that have been released but nice write-ups on how the cracks were done and 
there was a tool developed that I think uh, the the original demuffin program, which was sort of modified a modified version of muffin. And Demuffin has been patched again, not only to fix a couple of bugs, but make it easier to automate these cracks. That tool that 4AM is using is available as well. Uh, and it looks like as of tonight, there are 279 items in this collection. Uh, so, and a lot of it's, you know, the, the educational software stuff that you would never touch with a 10 foot pole, but there's some really great stuff in there as well. Um, you know, for example, like when I was younger, there was a game, there was, there's a game called Jungle Hunt and on the Apple II, the crack screen spelled hunt differently. Mm. Um, and it was offensive. And my father saw that and said, give me that disc and destroyed it. And I was not allowed to play that. And 4AM has a cracked version of Jungle Hunt that doesn't include that screen. So I can travel back to 1983 and give that to my uh, 12-year-old self and say, here, show this to your dad. Yeah, this is fantastic. I absolutely love 4AM's Twitter feed. I am not actually on Twitter, but if if I was going to join, this would be the reason. <laughs> uh, I was never a cracker back in the day, and but I was fascinated by it. I didn't understand how, how people did that. And Sephora's uh, Twitter feed is just cracking 101. You know, it's it's taking you to school on how this is done. Sephora's goes into just gory detail on every single crack, and it's it's you know it's like a live blog of each of each game that uh, that they're working on. So uh, you get to see the whole process step by step, and uh, you know 143 characters at a time. It's really fantastic. And not only that, I mean, this is clearly whoever this person is is a is a hardcore Apple II fan. Uh, their location is listed as I live on track zero. <laughs> and uh, their avatar is the satire floppy disk treatment icon from uh, the Beagle Brothers. We talked about that right. with Mark last month, how uh, they had those funny icons. And one of them was uh, showing you should not feed your Apple, your, you should not feed your floppy disks to uh, alligators. So 4AM's uh, Twitter avatar is that icon from the Beagle Brothers software. Uh, so yeah, it looks like as of this recording, 4AM is working on Championship Loadrunner. They say, Ooh. God, I love Broderbund bootloaders. And by love, I mean hate. And by hate, <laughs> I mean admire. So it gives you a, a taste. Uh, and just the post just before that uh, looks like four hours sooner. So they're uh, plugging away here. Four hours before that, the post reads, Championship Lowrunner sets both input and output vectors to B7, B5, then calls them to read level data because at Roland Gust is insane. So it gives you a little taste of the level of detail that you're going to get in this Twitter feed. So if you wanted to know a little bit about cracking and how it goes, uh, this is just a dream come true, this Twitter feed. Absolutely love it. Broderbund, I think, was one of, the, one of those companies that uh, noticed early on that people were stealing or, or cracking and pirating their software and decided to take an active stance against that and kept coming up with more interesting and devious ways to protect their disks. And every time an article would appear in Computist on how to crack something or a title would show up on your local favorite pirate BBS, uh, they would go and change the protection and not not update version numbers or anything. It's just that the stuff that, that you bought at the store after that came out, the cracks no longer worked. Yeah, that uh, was pretty sneaky stuff. So we'll link to the Twitter feed here and also, of course, the... 4AM collection on archive.org. Uh, we've talked about Joe Eli a, a few times on this uh, on this podcast. He, uh, of course, released that uh, album B484 that was made on an Apple II with a, a MIDI card and a drum machine. Um, he made it back in 83. It wasn't released because his record company didn't know what to do with it. He re-released it. He released it himself in uh, 2014, finally, the, the originals. Um, and... He announced over on his Facebook page a week or two ago that 
There were some more tracks that, that were not included with the digital release that you can get on iTunes. They're, they're going to release a, a CD pressing later this year, and those extra tracks will be included on that. And as I was reading this, I, I noticed, again, I'd, I saw that uh, Waz wrote the liner notes for this original album, but uh, if you go to iTunes and buy it, you'll notice that there are no liner notes. That was kind of disappointing, I, I thought, but if you go over to Rackham Records Info, which I think is is the um, the record label that Joe is releasing this on. Steve uh, Waz's letter that, that he wrote to be included in the liner notes is there for you to read, and it's pretty cool. It talks about kind of the history because I guess one of the things that Joe did when he wasn't out on tour or recording was he ran a, an Apple II BBS, and Waz would call into it late at night, and they would chat back and forth, and so that's sort of interesting to see some of those uh, reminiscences from Waz. We're going to need a Joe Eli section on the show pretty soon. I think so. So tell me, Mike, if I wanted to know more random facts about Steve Jobs' childhood home, <laughs> where would I go to do that? Well, Quinn, you could go to Slate.com. This is uh, an article that was written by uh, a woman named Megan Shovanek, who is the granddaughter of the stepmother of Steve Jobs. She married Paul Jobs, uh, Steve's adoptive father, after after his mother died, and spent a lot of her time in this how the, the famous Steve Jobs house where the garage is and uh, she kind of she wrote up a little article. I guess it was originally for uh, Zocalo Public Square, which I think she goes to like UCLA or something like that, and that's their campus newspaper. And Slate picked it up and reprinted it, and uh, she kind of talks about her memories of, you know, why the house the house is significant to her, not because of the history of Apple, but because of the family memories that she has there. And she kind of wraps it up by saying that the garage these days is filled with her, her grandmother's laundry and car and most of the original stuff from the garage is gone, except, of course, for the cement floors and like a couple of shelves. Wow, that's riveting stuff. <laughs> Especially since the garage doesn't actually have much significance in Apple history, as, as was mentioned last year. That's right, yeah. As we uh, broke here on this very show, the news that uh, the garage was uh, really not such a thing. The garage is a lie. Yeah, the garage is a lie. Well, uh, apropos of nothing, I'm a big fan of Slate. Uh, one of my favorite authors on there, Phil Plate, uh, is also uh, is also there on Slate. He talks about lots of science and technology types of things. So uh, maybe our listeners might like to go look up Phil Plate while you're over there on Slate. And it's yeah, easy to remember because it rhymes. Yeah, <laughs> see, yeah, great minds think alike. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that about wraps up our news, does it not? I think so. I don't see any other items on our uh, spreadsheet here. So why don't we move to weird gaming? Let's do it. You know Choplifter? You know Loadrunner? But do you know this? It's time for a weird game. All right. I am seeing Omega. For, for your pick. What is that? Yeah, all right, I'll start since you uh, <laughs> kicked the ball my way. So this was a game that I think it was actually fairly popular. So again, one of these games that is not necessarily weird in the you've never heard of it sense, but perhaps weird in the just sense that it was an unusual game uh, in its own right. Uh, so the, the gist of it is it's this futuristic tank combat game. Uh, so you are battling an opponent. Each of you has a tank in an arena, and the arena is fairly large, and there's obstacles, there's trees and rocks and stuff in it, and your tanks drive around. The, the hook is that the tanks are autonomous, and you build these tanks by setting up the equipment that you want on it, choosing from various types of equipment, and then you actually write the code that drives the tank. And so they have this kind of built-in programming language, and there's a full-screen text editor and everything, 
And so you write the code in this kind of made up language they created. And then so each of you can write your own tank AI, if you like, it would be sort of artificial intelligence, for lack of a better word. And so you would each write this on your own Apple II, and then you can both bring your floppies together on one on one machine and put your tanks into the same arena and fight them against each other. And whoever wrote the better tank AI wins. I think uh, this is uh, the first or at least a very early example of this type of gameplay, this sort of... Uh, programming as gameplay type of thing. And it's really interesting to me because this idea comes back every few years. Uh, I think there's a game on the Mac called uh, Robot Wars, and there's a bunch of them on iOS right now. It's it's an idea that gets recycled every so often. And what I think is funny about it is it, it just never works very well. Uh, it's never as popular as I think people think it will be. And uh, my theory on that one is that, you know, programmers who are, of course, making these games are so fascinated by programming themselves that they assume, well, if I think programming is so fascinating, everybody must think so, right? So <laughs> I'm going to make a game where programming is the game. And mm. yeah, it turns out most people don't really like programming. <laughs> and these games, <laughs> like I say, just never do well. Sometimes they're dressed up with, you know, icons that you drag around to make your, your program. Uh, but sometimes, like this game, uh, you're literally writing text, you're writing source code in this uh, kind of pseudocode type language. And so that's not even uh, giving you something pretty to look at while you're doing it. You're literally writing code. So uh, it's, yeah, it's funny. It's funny that every few years this gets tried again, and it's never very successful. But if you are interested in this type of thing, Omega is a really excellent implementation of it. It's really nicely done. It's a great looking game. The code editor even, for example, it's not a text screen like you would imagine. It's actually uh, in high-res graphics, so they've actually written a text mm. rendering engine uh, complete with cursor, you know, backspace, the whole nine yards fonts and everything. Uh, so they went to the trouble of doing all that in high res. You write your code in there and, you know, the, uh, the top-down view of the arena where the tanks are fighting looks great. Uh, it's just the production values are awesome on it. Really nicely done. If you're interested in this weird sort of concept of writing code as gameplay, this is a great early example of it. I don't suppose you ever played this, Mike? I did actually play oh, quite a bit. Oh, is that uh, right? It's a, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun. I, my friends and I used to kind of compare it to sort of um, it's like a chess game for the Apple II for people who are tired of just playing chess. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's not a bad way to look at it. Yeah, I had uh, one friend who was also interested in programming, and we played this together quite a bit. Uh, it was probably the only one and only time I ever had a lot of fun with one of these games because it's difficult to find another person who also wants to <laughs> do this sort of thing. And it's a great example also of what we talked about in a previous show about that kind of soft skill educational software where, you know, like in Search of the Most Amazing Thing or uh, the Haley Project, where... Uh, you can have a lot of fun doing something and you're actually learning a lot in the process. You know, you're learning these basic skills of debugging and uh, analyzing a problem and thinking through how to solve it with code, you know, while playing a game. It's the kind of thing if you tried to make an educational game to do this, it would be awful and transparent and kids would hate it. But if you actually just try to make a good game out of programming tanks, it turns out uh, it's fun to play and you learn a lot doing it. So uh, if there's any parents out there who are uh, exposing their kids to Apple IIs, this would be a really great game for that. And it also plays great in Virtual 2, uh, the online Apple II emulator, so we'll link to that. Two thumbs up from the Open Apple crew. <laughs> Huzzah! So what have you got for us, Mike? 
Well, this one's not quite two thumbs up um, for anybody, I, I don't think. But it was my the first real exp- exposure I had uh, playing an Infocom game on my Apple II, and that was Infidel. Uh, it was 1983, early in 1983, so a little bit, definitely a little bit later in the line of games. And I, I remember that the copy that I had uh, was the 40-column all-in-caps version of the game, which made it difficult to read. You couldn't play it for very long. Your eyes just kind of bugged out after a while. Um, so Infocom is a little bit different, though, than the rest of the... the, the or, uh, Infidel is different than the rest of the, the Infocom pantheon because, it, you know, they tend to... Most of the games tend to have you take the... Uh, step into the avatar of a sympathetic character or uh, one that you can like and love. And, and this one, you play a grave robber and not a good one. Your local crew uh, has deserted you on your quest. You're, you're in Egypt and you're, you're basically robbing... Um, a, a pyramid, a, a, an ancient Egyptian pyramid for treasure. And uh, the game itself, the mechanics are kind of kind of bland, uh, but it goes the extra above and beyond to insult you at, at every step, every mistake that you make. And, and so I, I really kind of enjoyed it. It was written by uh, Mike Berlin, who also did Cutthroats and Suspended, and I think may have done one or two other games. He did a lot of adventure games over his career, a few with Infocom before moving on to other companies. My favorite Infocom games tend to be the non-puzzlers. I, I like Trinity and I like uh, Mind Forever Voyaging a lot more than, say, Suspended or, or uh, Planetfall or something like that. But I really enjoy this one because it was a, a first experience for me with Infocom uh, and because it was a, a, a different tack than most of their storylines took. For sure. This is a great example of some of the really experimental and out there stuff that Infocom was doing. I think both because they were trying really, really hard to get their products seen as, you know, the new form of literature. And also just because of the medium, you know, being a text adventure, you don't have to animate or illustrate any of this stuff, uh, any of these concepts, you can really go outside the box, you can do all kinds of crazy concepts like this that would never fly in any other type of game. And uh, uh, this is a a great example of some of the yeah, pretty oddball stuff they were doing over there. The game itself is kind of hit or miss in, in terms of play. You know, like I said, the puzzles are sort of bland and straightforward and, and part of it. So you you have to descend into this, into the pyramid and, and figure out uh, how to get out. And part of that is to decipher these hieroglyphics. But the way that it's implemented, you don't actually have to do that puzzle to, to beat the game. Uh, so, you know, there's kind of some missteps in there. And overall, it, ad- it adds up to being a, a slightly above average, but not great Infocom game. Over at uh, the Digital Antiquarian, Jimmy Meyer has a nice write-up on the history of it. And you know, as with everything he, he writes over there, it's, it's in-depth and fascinating. And I highly suggest you check that out as well. And of course, you can play it on your favorite emulator. And we'll link to that uh, article in the show notes if you ever wanted to know anything about Infocom, uh, look no further than the digital antiquarian. Jimmy Marr is uh, crushing it over there. Well, that and GetLamp, of course. Yes, of course. (laughs) All right. Well, that wraps up Weird Gaming, I think. Uh, We've got some feedback. Let's dive into that. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. So this is, uh, we've got a little bit of catching up to do. We've got some older feedback that uh, has been gathering dust. My apologies for that. As the uh, wrangler of our emails, I have uh, 
been dropping the ball a little bit here. So a while back uh, on the show, we were talking about, uh, I forget what the topic was, but we were involved mentioning Atari a lot. And uh, <laughs> I, I managed to uh, throw a boo Atari in every time. And that's a bit of an inside joke, I think, in the Apple II uh, community that I think got started with Jason Scott at Kansas Fest. He uh, had done a a presentation involving uh, a bunch of slides and uh, obviously it was you know uh, from an apple II perspective but a lot of the slides had uh, atari content in them and he had written <laughs> in the corner of all the slides uh, he'd written boo atari every time there was an atari on the screen and of course we all got a chuckle out of that so uh, i particularly found that amusing and have been doing that ever since and so i was doing that on a previous episode and that got the attention of one of our cousin podcast if you like uh rob over at the player missile podcast uh <laughs> sent us a, a note saying so d- did an atari run over someone's dog <laughs> uh, apple people bashing atari is like general motors complaining that delorean is taking away market share that's uh, <laughs> that's a good analogy i like that so uh, he says i'm an atari podcaster yet regular listener to your show that's good you're trading up I especially enjoy the in-depth technical content and great interviews, Uh, but as I found out when interviewing Paul Hegstrom to get a primer on Apple II graphics, there's more in common between the systems than you might think. They run approximately the same speed and have similar high-res modes, similar enough that Apple II high-res games can be ported fairly easily to the Atari. Although to make up for all the anti-Atari snark, I'd be remiss in saying that it doesn't work the other way around, as the Atari half a generation later has specialized coprocessors for graphics and sound. So, he says, can we all just agree that you should direct your snark at the C64? Well, good news and bad news. Good news is <laughs> I will continue to direct snark at the Commodore 64, Rob. Uh, the bad news is there's more than enough snark to go around, so boo Atari. Uh, and he says, uh, oh, he says, wish I could have made it to your talk out here in the Bay Area on Veronica. Maybe you'll present at Kansas Fest again. Well, I'm afraid that won't be happening. Uh, it was tremendous, tremendous fun to bring uh, Veronica to Kansas Fest last year, but uh, it was also tremendously uh, challenging logistically, so I don't imagine I'll be doing that again. Pleading for mercy only makes it worse, Rob. <laughs> it really does. It's best just to ignore me. Uh, but actually, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he brought this up because, you know, uh, I hope nobody's ever genuinely offended by my snark uh, or takes it seriously. <laughs> uh, it's a bit of a funny thing to me because, you know, those of us who grew up in the uh, original microcomputer wars, especially, you know, as teenagers, it was actually quite a big deal. You know, I was pretty deep into it myself at the time. Uh, I actually took that quite seriously, took it very personally. Mm, yeah. And... Uh, it's something that still happens to this day. You know, people pick a particular consumer product, whether it's, you know, iPhone or Android or Mac or PC or whatever the turf war du jour is. And, you know, that human instinct for tribalism is just so incredibly strong that people will get really personally invested in arbitrary consumer product choices. And I find that fascinating. So, uh, you know, looking back on it now, of course, it's just incredibly silly and ridiculous, the amount of energy that uh, I wasted and getting offended uh, or otherwise worked up about uh, people who used particular computers or other particular computers. And uh, so I like to make fun of it now as a reminder of how silly it all was. How silly it all still is because it happens every day with uh, iOS and Android. Yes. Well, and, you know, it gives you perspective. I think those of us that grew up in what what was maybe the first of these uh, tribalistic electronic consumer electronics wars. Now I can look at the current iOS Android war and just laugh it off as all just yeah. silly. I mean, you know, use whatever device you like and who, who cares whatever other people like, you know, different devices, <laughs> they're good at different stuff. Just pick the one you like. And, it, right. you know, it, your phone does not define you. <laughs> exactly. You don't have to die on a hill uh, <laughs> for your smartphone selection. You really don't folks. 
But those of us who grew up in the microcomputer wars have made that mistake already. Perhaps the kids today have not. So they got to learn the hard way. Except for those dumb commode or users. Mm, yes, well, serves them right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all fun and games. But of course, the Apple II, as we all know, <laughs> is in fact the best machine of them all. That's right. That's why we can say it's fun and games, because we're the best. And, uh, you know, we'll get we'll get hate mail, I'm sure, once... Uh, <laughs> Once the Commodore users finish. Send it to me. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't worry, you'll never get it. The Commodore users are still waiting for their email programs to load. Oh, no. Yeah. I had to get one in there somehow. That was a little forced. But try. All right, moving right along. Uh, listener Mike, uh, not you, Mike, another Mike, uh, writes in to say, uh, Hello, hey, Quinn and Mike. I listened with interest to the discussion about the things you would want to have on your last 10 floppies. Yeah, we had a, another listener write in and ask uh, what he should put on his 10, oh, 10 right. floppy disks. And he was looking specifically for utilities and not games. So we talked about different types of, you know, and we talked about copy to plus and system masters and various things. And we mentioned uh, terminal programs as well, uh, since they're uh, not just useful for BBSs, but uh, useful for many things in modern life. And uh, he says, uh, far from being made, I was dismayed, the very opposite of made. Uh, he talks like Carrington. Yes, it could indeed be harder to use an old terminal program to pots, pots line dial up to BBSs, which I assume is telecommunications jargon for the uh, old style landlines. But you can still relive the BBS experience rather easily if you want. It takes a few odds and ends, such as a null modem cable and adapter and or uh, devices like the Lantronics serial drivers uh, or the Raspberry Pi. So I assume what he's alluding to here is the way that people can sort of relive that BBS experience by hooking their Apple II into a modern computer uh, such as uh, through a serial cable or through a Raspberry Pi that uh, is then on the internet, and then use Telnet, uh, and you can kind of tunnel through Telnet over the internet to BBSs that are set up the same way on the other end. And you can kind of get a lot of that experience uh, that way. I guess it's something that we haven't uh, talked a lot about. Uh, have you ever tried that, Mike? I have, yeah. It, it works pretty well. Okay. Um, I don't know that there are that many Telnet BBSs out there. There are a few, and there are a few um, Apple II slash retro computing-centric ones that are fun to check out. I think uh, part of the problem is when these things get announced, you know, everybody signs up, goes there once, posts something like, hi, and then never posts again. Yeah. Uh, so they turn into virtual ghost towns fairly quickly. But, you know, of course, the, the, big, the big thing is, does this solution emulate the, the satisfying dial-up sound of a 300-baud modem connecting? The experience feels like it wouldn't be the same. I guess I haven't tried it. Now, having said that, I haven't tried that myself with the Telnet thing. I have tried some of these Telnet BBSs through the browser. You know, they usually have a browser interface as well, which is, of course, cheating. And, you know, by that route, it doesn't feel, uh, doesn't bring back that BBS feeling at all. But uh, I've thought about one of my side projects that I'll probably never get to is I've thought about <laughs> building some sort of box that would replicate uh, the landline uh, in between two modems. So you could, somewhere like Kansas Fest, if you had multiple Apple IIs and if people could bring their modems and plug them in, this box would actually generate dial tones and, and so on and do everything that, you know, more or less that the landline would have been doing. And uh, the modems would be none the wiser. So you could actually run, you know, ProTerm on one end and real, real BBS software on the other and have that uh, experience. There's definitely a lot of the, you know, ignore the man behind the curtain going on here where you just kind of have to, uh, you know, I'll just push the Raspberry Pi behind the monitor here where I can't see it and <laughs> pretend that this is 
an actual dial-up experience. Yeah. Um, it's it's certainly not, but if you're uh, willing to ignore a few things and look the other way, then yeah, you can kind of relive that experience a little bit. Yeah, there was a real magic to to modem dialing. You know that there was it was that anticipation. You know because you didn't know are are you going to get a busy signal? You know right. <laughs> like that after that dialing finished and it started ringing instead of getting a busy signal. Oh, that was the best sound in the whole world. <sighs> you know you've been probably dialing this BBS for an hour or more and just waiting for it to ring and oh when it rang and then connected oh <laughs> what a rush that was I remember that so well and then if you were really lucky that the sysop was around and he would break into chat and you could actually have a real-time chat with somebody instead of just posting and replying to messages that had been left totally yeah in fact some friends of mine and I in junior high school we used to uh, chat on our Apple IIs. We would actually just dial in directly to each other and mm. chat as you would, you know, nowadays on uh, something like uh, Jabber or, you know, an instant messaging program or even like texting uh, nowadays. We would actually do that with our modems because uh, mm. there's, uh, you know, if you want to, as, as a teenager, you know, you want, you want to have a personal conversation uh, about teenager stuff. It's uh, sure. it's easier to do writing than talking, uh, especially for nerdy types like we were. So we used to do that. And uh, that was fun. All right, moving along. Uh, thanks for that, Mike. And Oh, you know what? Actually, there's one more bit here. I guess he says, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm visiting with Michael Sternberg this weekend, and we're going to get an Apple IIc and other 8-bit machines talking to a variety of BBSs in this way, uh, talking about the Raspberry Pi Telnet process again. Uh, we're going to have fun calling DJ's Place BBS, and while you guys pretend you can't call BBSs with your proterm, <laughs> he says he's kidding, uh, but he has to try and keep up with the chief sarcasm officer, which of course is me. Let's see, so he talks about it's a very personal decision whether proterm or AE is worth using up a five and a quarter inch floppy, uh, but if you want to try calling BBSs, then go for it. And uh, like we talked about last time, of course, it's also useful for talking to your Arduinos and other types of serial devices. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Thanks for that, Mike. All right, last one I've got here is from Hugh. And he says, oh, yeah, so this was an interesting one. So Hugh wrote to, uh, to ask, with regards to our Beagle Brothers roundtable, he says it was terrific. Uh, thanks for that, Hugh. Uh, he says, I think that even if my house had caught on fire during the middle of that, I'd have to keep listening. Well, <laughs> luckily that didn't happen. I don't know if your insurance would cover death by Beagle Brothers roundtable. <laughs> I uh, says, thanks also, Quinn, for asking Alan about some of the timeout technical specifics. My pleasure. Uh, he asks, one timeout trivia question that I wish had been asked. All timeout programs have a signature consisting of the hex bytes 0B02E12644. And he asks, was that series of numbers just random or did it actually mean something? Well, that is a really interesting question, Hugh. And uh, we tried to find that out for you, in fact. We wrote to uh, Randy Brandt, who, of course, was uh, he's kind of a regular on the show, actually, and uh, asked him that very question. And he then went on to ask Alan, who had written that part of the timeout stuff. And Alan could not remember, unfortunately, but they were pretty sure that it was actually an arbitrary series of bytes. It was a signature that marked uh, the start of a, uh, a timeout module. And uh, apparently it was just an arbitrary sequence of bytes. They needed, you know, they needed a sequence that would identify the, the modules uniquely. So unfortunately, uh, it does not appear to be the name of anyone's dog or anything otherwise uh, funny in that sense. Uh, so, but interesting question, Hugh. Thanks for that. Uh, that's all the feedback I have. Did you have any, Mike? No, no, no feedback uh, here. People don't like me. They send stuff to you. Mm, well, yeah, we don't read the hate mail online, so otherwise. <laughs> that's true. I do have a lot of that. <laughs> do do please continue to send Mike your hate mail, folks. He, uh, <laughs> he really appreciates it. 
That's right. I am the hate sponge. <laughs> if it wasn't for your uh, bad attention, he wouldn't get any at all. <laughs> Aw. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, let's move on to tech, shall we? Fasten your seat bits and warm up your soldering irons. It's time to talk tech. So I've got one quick tech item this uh, this month. I've been hard at work on my uh, Teddy Top project, which I've talked about here on the show before. To recap, it is it is a cap. In fact, it's a sort of plastic shell that I'm building that goes on top of an Apple IIc or IIc Plus, and it has a display built into it and sort of attempts to turn your Apple IIc into a Kansas Fest going laptop, or I suppose also Starbucks going if you were uh, hipster enough to take your Apple II into a Starbucks. Oh, God. If you're that hipster, I'm going to punch you, by the way. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm having fun. And take their Apple II. <laughs> yes, and take your Apple II and maybe your lunch money. Because if you're hipster enough to do that, then I can probably take you. So anyway, <laughs> uh, the Teddy Top uh, is going uh, going swimmingly along, uh, for lack of a better word. I've recently added support for uh, flash storage to it. So the, again, the Great. idea is to make my Apple IIc into something that is a, a road warrior of sorts that can go to Kansas Fest or wherever else I might like to take it, not a Starbucks, and have everything that I need built into it. So it's got the display, and I've talked about that previously. I've also documented that process on my blog, which I will link to in the show notes because I'm into the shameless self-promotion. And <laughs> I recently... Uh, picked up one of uh, the Nishida Radio's uh, Unis Disc, or Uni S Disc, however we've decided to say that. Uh, picked up one of those awesome devices. I was lucky enough to, to get one before he went on hiatus. And I slightly dismantled it and re-engineered it a little bit and kind of worked it into the Teddy Top. So the Teddy Top now has uh, a slot in it that takes an SD card, and hiding in there is the uh, Nishida Radio board. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so it's nice. uh, That way I can take all of my software with me as well and not have to cart around lots and lots of floppy disks. Uh, Not being satisfied there, I quickly realized, well, this is awesome. Now I can take LoadRunner everywhere I go. And and then I remembered, (laughs) oh, wait, LoadRunner and most other Apple II games are basically unplayable without a joystick. I had actually kind of forgotten how important a joystick is for Apple II gaming. So I said, oh, yeah. Yeah, so I set out to solve that problem. And uh, I thought this idea was pretty clever. Turns out I'm not the first person to have it because I started mm-hmm. Googling and found out that our uh, our own uh, Apple II community member, Dagan Brock, has actually already done this and possibly others as well. But in any what case, yeah, darn it. Take all my ideas before I had them. <laughs> uh, but in any case, uh, I decided to do it anyway. And I wrote up my take on this project uh, on my blog, which I will also link to. So uh, the idea is to create a portable joystick for the Apple II that will go along with the Teddy Top. And, you know, portable joysticks are something that are commonplace nowadays in modern gaming consoles. You know, we have these game pads that have uh, analog joysticks in them. Uh, Of course, the challenge with the Apple II is that the joystick is analog, so you can't make something uh, as compact as a, you know, a digital game pad because you need analog sticks. Uh, the thought was, well, let's take one of those modern uh, small analog sticks and uh, add a couple of buttons to it and make it into a portable joystick. So I've uh, started prototyping that, and I got that working. Uh, the main challenge there for the uh, hardware folks among our listeners, uh, the main challenge there, of course, is that the Apple II's analog joystick uses a 150 kiloohm uh, potentiometer for each axis, and 150 kohms is... A weird size that nobody makes yeah. anymore. And once again, <laughs> ooh, 
darn it was uh, <laughs> of all the of all the sizes to choose uh, you know nowadays potentiometers are only made in sort of orders of magnitude sizes 1k 10k 100k and so on Right. And uh, yeah, 150K is just unobtainium. And in any case, I wanted to specifically use these little mini analog joysticks, which are 10K, as uh, luck would have it, or at least the ones that uh, I found are. So the challenge was then how to make that work with the Apple II. And I go into all the gory details on my blog entry, but uh, the short version is that because the Apple II's joystick is a pulse counter, the resistance in the joystick is used to speed up or slow down a train of pulses, which are then counted in the machine. Uh, what mm -hmm. you can do is, uh, so the pulse counting, or the uh, uh, pulse train is sped up and slowed down with an RC circuit, a, a resistor capacitor circuit. And uh, as any uh, beginning electrical engineering student knows, uh, an RC circuit has a time constant, and that's uh, what determines how quickly the circuit charges and discharges. And that's what the Apple II is counting as pulses. So if the resistance is too low, as it is in our case, you can compensate by increasing the capacitance. As long as the resulting time constant is the same, then the circuit will behave the same, and the Apple II won't know the difference. So I describe in, uh, in the blog post how to calculate uh, that and how to hook it all up. And I've got schematics in there if anyone wants to do this themselves. It's still on the breadboard right now, but I'm going to attempt to make a, an enclosure for it, uh, probably using the aforementioned shiny new 3D printer. Yeah, if I manage to achieve all that, I will, of course, share all of the uh, files and so on uh, online so everybody else can try and make their own. Can't wait. Should be fun. And I, I did try it out, actually, and it works great. I played uh, Load Runner for the first time, I think, in actually about 25 years, because I've never had a joystick hooked up to, to, to any of my laptops or modern computers, so I could never really play Load Runner in an, in an emulator either. It was really, really great, actually, to, to, to play it again <laughs> uh, with the joystick and the breadboard and the wires everywhere. And there's funny, I've got video of me doing this on the blog, so I'll link to that. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a real thrill, actually, to play Lowrunner for realsies once again. Awesome. So that's, uh, that's all I've got for tech this month. Okay, and I think that uh, brings us to the end of our show. I think it does. All right. Well, thank you again to uh, Paul Lutis for, for joining us with uh, some really great stories of Apple writer and beyond. And thank you, Quinn, for podcasting with me and everybody else for listening along. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll see all of our listeners at Kansas Fest. Run, don't walk to sign up in April. Hey, every one of you better be there. That's right. the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. <laughs> yeah, that was super weird.